This is Footy Time with Daniel Andrews, and as always, I'm joined on the other line by Johnny Raftopoulos. What a weekend, Johnny. Dan, oh, look, I'm going to go through a few little statistics right now that might uh, just paint a bit of a picture of what we've just ended. So in September 1964, the top-selling album was Hard Day's Night by the Beatles. Popular one. <laughs> uh, the yeah, Very popular one. The top uh, single was Dancing in the Street, Martha and the Vandellas. And some other notable ones in that top ten was House of the Rising Sun, The Animals. Uh, actually, that's probably the only other notable one there. Uh, Top-grossing film, A Shot in the Dark. Have you seen it, Dan? No, I haven't seen that one, have you? No, I haven't seen it either, but it's uh, Peter Sellers, uh, Blake Edwards directed, so it must be good. Um, you know, the in, uh, the Indigenous people were not uh, recognised in the Australian Constitution. Uh, Manhunt landed on the moon. I could go on and on and on. This <laughs> it's a long been, time ago. This really puts it into perspective what drought, 57-year drought's been broken and, yeah. What else can you say? Absolutely. Well, yeah, before we get into some of the analysis Maybe let's just talk a little bit about how we were feeling leading up to the game and a bit after as well. So to start with, uh, yeah, what were you thinking in the lead up either, you know, days before, but yeah, I guess closer to game time maybe. But yeah, what was the experience leading up to it like for you? Well, look, Dan, we won't go too much into fan mode and share every single emotion that we were going through. But uh, yeah, the Friday, you know, obviously being the public holiday, it was a good chance to sort of reflect a bit and uh, watch the open training session. And, you know, I kept telling people I was, I was just really, and I think I said this in the prelim as well, but I was very calmly nervous and that makes no sense, but I was always nervous, but there was always just this little bit of calm over it. And I'm not quite sure why you just wanted to trust this team. Uh, they'd given you no reasons not to. And yeah, like nerves are natural, but that's kind of how I felt. I just felt really controlled nerves. How about you? Yeah, compared to the prelim, I really was not nervous at all. But I think my nervous energy kind of manifested itself in a weird way. Basically, especially in the the week leading up, I basically was just looking for any podcast, any news article that would confirm my belief that Melbourne was going to win. <laughs> so I was going out of my way to find that sort of content. And I think what kind of snapped me out of that was I found a article by the SEN staff writers and I'm convinced they told like half of their writers to pick the Bulldogs just to keep it interesting. But like seeing, seeing four people pick the Bulldogs and give reasons why they should win to Melbourne three, it kind of just snapped me out of it and just started me thinking, you know, like grand finals are really hard to win even if Melbourne's been the best team all year, mm. you know, you're still going to have to do a lot right. So from that point on, I was a bit more content to just, you know, lap it up and enjoy Melbourne being in a grand final rather than thinking about the fact that they had to win it. So a bit of a shift in mindset. And uh, yeah, the nerves didn't really kick in properly until about 20 minutes before game time. Yeah, spot on, Dan. I, th- I think I felt the same. I think that Saturday morning, I definitely had my first thoughts of maybe this isn't, the time or maybe yeah maybe we haven't maybe just gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves or that's a pretty good side that we're playing and if that is the case just enjoy the moment make the most of it uh doesn't happen every day um but yeah like that was just the way it was yeah it's just great to be seeing melbourne playing off on grand final day like 
you know, Grand Final Day is the most important game, obviously. It's got the biggest build-up and so many years now, like all my adult life basically, I've been, you know, gearing up for this and celebrating other teams on this day and it was just amazing to be able to see Melbourne even just competing and getting to that level. So, yeah, it felt like an achievement in itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what about after the game was won and done, how were you reacting in those moments or feeling at that time? I, I'm i not really sure why, Dan, but I honestly thought when it happened, I'd, when I was visualising it, the possibility of it, I thought I'd burst into a million tears and be all emotional and that, like we've seen some of the ex-players and that and uh, some of the other reactions we've seen. Um I just felt myself going to this this state of complete bliss and just floating on air, and I, I was just taking everything in. I was celebrating, obviously, but I wasn't like a sobbing mess or anything. I just, it felt like a dream. It actually really did feel like a dream at the time. I didn't think I was awake, and I was I was literally pinching myself. Um, but I just felt this real sense of it was relief, and just this kind of just this is the end of the journey and we're just just taking it in i'm not sure if everyone else felt that way but yeah that's just how i felt in the moment yeah i can see where you're sort of coming from there i wonder if it would have been slightly different if you know it really was close like all the way through but maybe not i probably would uh, it probably would have been different i think yeah yeah yeah, definitely slightly different experience but yeah for me it was just a mixture of like just complete joyfulness and yeah there was definitely a bit of relief in there as well and just just immense pride as well in you know being able to relate to such an amazing playing group and you know they're representing the Melbourne Football Club and even when Melbourne was terrible like there's nothing I enjoyed more than seeing you know a Melbourne player stream along the wing or just do something that actually looked half decent and now they're just playing the most immaculate football. It's just amazing to actually witness some of this. And we'll get into some of the ins and outs of the game, but this is definitely a game to remember. We talked in the lead-up about, you know, whether you want the wipeout where you just win easily and then, or do you want the challenge? So I think we kind of got both in this game. We've got both. You got, you, you got both. the challenge, you got a big challenge, and then you kind of got the wipeout at the end, which we'll discuss, but... Yeah, it was a real interesting mixture. And yeah, I think I've mentioned this to you already off air, but just the, yeah, just to see some of these guys get up there and get their premiership medals, uh, it's just an amazing feeling. Like, you know, you think mm. about these guys as being great players, like guys like Lever and Mayo come from other clubs and, you know, other great players. Like, Melbourne's got plenty of them, but just, it's just, it just, it changes how people see a player when they are a premiership player, I think. And it does. Uh, yeah, just to think of Melbourne players as premiership players now, it just seems crazy. And just that in itself, take away everything else, just brings me so much happiness. And uh, yeah, just makes you want to relive it all over yeah. again. And hopefully, you know, they'll have more chances. But yeah, I guess for the time being, we just got to absolutely bask in the glory that hasn't been felt for 57 years. Yeah, totally agree. I think you, you've got to make the most of it. I know that you kind of, in the football world at least, you don't get a lot of time to to 
reminisce and celebrate about it because um you know we're all they're already starting trade radio and all the trade talks starting you kind of get the monday i think but then after that the media definitely turns their attention straight to trade period but um for us we don't have to do that we can definitely bask in the glory of it for a, a bit longer and yeah i mean you're right when you see those players getting up there on the on the dais you just you instantly think about where they've come from how they got there and what role they played and you just yeah you feel so happy for them it's it's just so yeah it's so great this is for them i know everyone says it's for the fans and it is for the fans but you know you couldn't be happier for them really yeah absolutely and that's a good segue uh, into something we're going to do next week. So I had this idea quite a while ago, and we're going to do it even if it wasn't Melbourne who won the Premiership, but I think it's going to be called something along the lines of making a Premiership team. So Johnny and I will do a little bit of homework between now and next week and, yeah, look at the journey of how Melbourne actually got here. Originally, it was going to be a bit more player-focused, but we'll weave in a bit of uh, team stuff as well. But, yeah, just what makes a Premiership team, and obviously every Premiership team is unique, but what's actually happened to this group to go from, you know, a bunch of individuals, a bunch of guys that may or may not have, you know, good illustrious careers or just even a decent career to now premiership players. So it'll be an interesting journey to unpack there. Absolutely. Can't wait. All right. We've done our preliminaries. Let's get into what we do and pick this game apart and see what actually happened because it's footy time. And, uh, as much as all the other stuff matters, what matters at least as much is actually what happened on the ground. <laughs> so let's uh, let's have a look what happened. All right. So just to set it up a little bit. So this game was obviously played over at Optus Stadium in Perth, 5.15 start time, so still daylight, coming into Melbourne at 7.15. So uh, I guess this might be a bit of a prelude to what's to come in future in Melbourne. I'm guessing there'll be a big push to at least do a Twilight Grand Final um, to get, you know, some of that halftime entertainment at night. Personally, I'd prefer it to be during the day, but I guess Twilight's not a bad compromise. Where do you sit on this, Johnny? I would also prefer it to be during the day. Uh, Wasn't really a fan of the night at all. Uh, Obviously, it was night here, not there, but yeah, I just, I don't know. It doesn't quite fit for AFL, in my opinion. I'm just... It, it just feel like it's trying to be something else and yeah, it's it's not it's not great i am open to a twilight i think if you're going to try it try the twilight out 435 whatever it is uh but i i just think that i feel like the night is just a bit rigid i'm not sure i just i really just think that that's it doesn't really allow people to do what they want to do whether it's beforehand after uh everyone's very used to the traditions of i guess barbies and um, socialising afterwards, you've got a bit of time there. You know, I don't know. Look, that, that might just be tradition talk and yeah, that doesn't usually wash with a lot of these people who are making the decisions. But yeah, I'd be open to the twilight, but that's about it. Yeah, I think it's clear, like if the fans had their say, it would stay in the day. So, you know, it's just how long are they going to respect that? I'm guessing eventually money's going to win out. They get a higher rating at night. They'll make more money. So eventually it will be a twilight slash night grand final. But Hopefully, we can hold out for a few more years. So anyway, let's talk more about some of the specifics setting this up. So Melbourne were favourites at $1.64 to the Bulldogs $2.26. Uh, a bit of a historical marker there. And uh, 
roughly about 85% of the experts seem to be tipping Melbourne. So uh, that kind of matches up with the 85% I calculated where you've got six out of seven wins against top five ty- uh, teams and uh, 10 out of 12 against top eight teams. So good percentages there for Melbourne. Uh, perfect conditions, 25 degree day in Perth, cooling down nicely as opposed to a chilly 13, although sunny day in Melbourne. <laughs> so some advantages of playing in Perth. Mm. And yeah, I'll get your thoughts on this, Johnny, but uh, something that caught my eye in pregame, I don't know when Simon Goodwin said this, but I think there was some sort of interview at some point and he basically just said, if we're us, we win. And yeah, to me that shows a lot of confidence and uh, yeah, just belief in the team. Absolutely. Uh, he backed his guys in and he drew the line in the sand, I guess. And yeah, that's confidence. I mean, confidence can make people do things that they wouldn't believe that they could normally do. It's, it's sometimes it's it's all about confidence. Sometimes it's got nothing to do with skill at all. It's it's so strange, but I loved I loved hearing that. I thought it was great. I can't imagine a coach saying anything more. I don't know what the word for it is, but it's not necessarily inspiring, but it's kind of like confidence building, inspiring. It's all just sort of wrapped up in that such simple comment. It's just shows that immense belief, I think. Yeah. He doesn't overuse his words, son. No. (laughs) All right. So, yeah, not sure what you thought about the pre-match entertainment, Johnny. I'm never too much of a fan of the whole pre-match entertainment thing anyway, but the Land Down Under song, I think, was done really well, and uh, yeah, that definitely got the emotions going a bit. Um, look, I think it was one of the better pre-match entertainments for a while. I'm a bit like you. I don't really tune into the grand final, and I'm a, I'm a music lover, but I don't really tune into the grand final to get a dose of entertainment. Um, but I kind of liked the way this was done. I, I thought it one thing that's been great about COVID is we've had a good chance to promote the local artists again. And this, I thought this was a nice touch where you had local artists working together and also yep. covering other people's songs. I, yeah. I thought it was good. I, um, they did it really well. Yeah. I guess, I think I was probably just a little bit distracted by what was about to happen to fully oh, appreciate 100%. it. <laughs> no, I, I 100% agree with you. And to be honest, the only one I really paid attention to was, was when I heard Thunderstruck just because it was something to pump, pump me up. But, um, <laughs> but all in all, I thought they did a reasonable job there. Yeah. So it had been over 20,000 days since Melbourne had won a grand final. I don't know what the exact figure was. Uh, they flashed it up on the screen for a second before oh, yes. the game started. They did, but, yeah. Um, yeah, just another quick tidbit. It was just amazing to hear grand old flag blaring out on grand final day as Melbourne ran out. And yeah, like sometimes, you, well, you never know if that you're going to hear it at the end of the game, but even just hearing it at the beginning of the game was great just on the big stage seeing the guys run out do the photo yeah it, yeah we've only seen it i guess once in our lifetime uh you yeah i wasn't i wasn't old enough to see the 88 you you weren't no you were no. you born yet then uh just just yeah <laughs> okay yeah i mean it's just special just to see the boys out there song playing yeah that's when it's real and there were definitely more Melbourne supporters in the crowd. I know some of them would have just been, you know, WA guys who were taking Melbourne as their team. But, you know, there was plenty of Melbourne support, which is great. And I think there were would have been a lot of fans that uh, 
would have had teams in the VFL before the uh, WA-based teams as well. So, Yes, yeah. that's very true. All right, let's get into quarter one. So for those of you who listened to the prelim recap of Melbourne Geelong, it's going to be the same format. So we'll go through a brief-ish <laughs> description <laughs> of the quarters. Johnny and I will have a bit of a chat and then uh, – We'll go to some key moments and finish off with some questions. So there's a fair bit to get through, but uh, we'll let it all hang out because it's, you know, the grand final after all. (laughs) So the game started with high intensity, as you'd expect, and there were some really big hits. The one I remember most was May uh, putting a dog to ground. I'm not sure who it was at halfback, hitting him really hard, not giving him any time to compose himself there. And uh, yeah, they... It was very clear early that Melbourne had definitely come to play. But it was uh, Petraka who landed the first blow after playing on, after receiving from Salem uh, quite a low kick. I'm not sure whether he got called to play on, but he was very happy to play on. He got a quick kick away and basically split the middle and uh, hit the back fence as well. So great way for Melbourne to start there. What a great goal to start off. I mean, it was off like two steps and he just dobbed it. We'd missed a couple and Track just comes in and goes, all right, enough of that nonsense. Let's get on the board. Bang. It was fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> Really stamping his authority early, that's for sure. So a couple of other trends in uh, this first quarter. Melbourne's pressure was really high and they were repeatedly forcing the dogs into turnover around their half-back line and just in their half of the ground there. So quite difficult for them to get many forward entries, uh, at least clean forward entries. Um, And, uh, yeah, it was really just both the pressure and the want to take the game on, dialed up to 100 or maybe 110. Melbourne hit this with everything they had it looked like. Kind of reminiscent of their early game in the season where Melbourne started like a house on fire as well, but I feel like the intensity and pressure was even higher on this occasion, which you'd kind of expect in a grand final, but great way for them to start. And just one other quick play I wanted to single out was uh, Pickett's great pressure going back inside 50 against two dogs opponents. He had a couple of uh, pressure acts before diving to smother, and uh, that actually ended up in a D's goal as well. So... Ended up in the first quarter, 4-5-29 to one two, eight. Amazing, amazing stuff. Their pressure was right on. They came to play. In fact, one of the things I thought was going through my head, anyway, straight away through that quarter was, my God, for the first time in 57 years, the Melbourne Football Club has come to play in a grand final. <laughs> it just it hadn't happened in the previous two. So that was a, I don't know, that was just a big deal to me. I thought... They actually they didn't get spooked. They came and they've actually they switched on and pressure was up there. It was off the charts. And yeah, the dogs were taken a little bit by surprise. Yeah, the dogs had been really fast starters in a lot of their games. So the fact that Melbourne did get a good start here was really important. And yeah, especially in that first five or ten minutes, there were some really big tackles and hits laid. So making it clear that nothing was going to be easy for the Bulldogs here. They did actually get quite a few inside 50s in this first quarter, but Melbourne's defence was standing out really well. And I guess they weren't necessarily the purest entries. They were getting rushed into kicks, so they weren't the hardest ones for Melbourne to defend. But obviously the system helps there as well. 
But uh, yeah, I guess what was happening at the ground was helping them defend when the dogs did get it inside 50. Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise. I mean, the dogs were actually winning the forward 50 uh, possession time battle. I think it was like 60 to 40 halfway through that first quarter. Um, so, you know, they were getting their entries. So just, yeah, they weren't making the most of them. Yeah, so I think I kind of mentioned it in the rundown, but one of the things that really stood out to me was just how willing Melbourne was to take the game on. So they were being really brave with the ball. Every chance they had, they were trying to do something with it. They, it was very little of this long down the line stuff. And they didn't necessarily score a lot from it because they were quite inaccurate, but uh, it really signaled their intent. And uh, what they did score a lot from was some of these uh, turnovers that they first forced the Bulldogs into with some manic pressure. So yeah, I guess it just shows that Melbourne can hurt you multiple ways and even if they're not getting all the damage on the board from one way, they can get it in another way. And uh, yeah, I guess you could argue that four five twenty nine uh, was a bit of unders for this quarter. They probably should have had at least one, maybe two more goals. Yeah, I think at least one more for sure. That would have been a good uh, maximization of the momentum they were getting. Um, and yeah, it really looked like they were they were well on top, and the dogs had just been kind of suffocated and. Couldn't get any of their lanes. Every lane was closed. Uh, nothing through the corridor. There was no chance for the dogs to move it through there. And yet something had to change very quickly. Yeah, there was quite a few occasions, referred to this in the last pod, where you know you just look up and it just seems like there's absolutely nowhere to go. So they, they get it around half back and there's no obvious option. So they start trying to invent things or just force to go down the line and that suits Melbourne down to a T. So... Yeah, in this first quarter, it was really all Melbourne. And I don't know about you, Johnny, but I was actually pretty nervous at the start of the second quarter because I was thinking, like, you know, a couple more goals to Melbourne here and this game is almost over. So, like, that meant that, you know, what happened at the start of that second was just super important. And we'll see the game completely changes. But, yeah, in that moment, that actually was making me really nervous because I thought from that point up, being 20 up, you know, if they get another three or four goals in the next 10 minutes. The game's pretty close to being over. I totally agree, Dan. I felt very nervous myself. I was very impressed with our first quarter, but I knew that we had to... It was a very important quarter coming up. We really needed to at least break even, I guess, in that quarter and just stamp our authority on the game. As we mentioned last week, there's very few grand finals and finals where big leads get overturned and we were on the verge of, of I guess splitting the game open and yeah if, if we went into the half time with say a five or six goal lead it would have been extremely difficult for the dogs to mow it down yeah absolutely so I think it was definitely a team effort in that first quarter but I'll just highlight the work of probably Salem and Petrarca they were the two uh just with their hardness and skill really stood out and uh, was turning were turning some of these turnovers into goals, um, either directly or indirectly. Did anyone else particularly stand out to you, Johnny, in this first quarter? Uh, look, Oliver was busy. I think he had about, I think he might have even had 11 or 12 touches in that first quarter. Um, so he was probably the one other. Uh, I thought Lever started a bit jittery, to be honest. He gave May a bit of a hospital handball at one point, and then I think he might have... Oh, there was one bit where I think he might have lost his man. Yeah, 
might have caused that. Not like a, a scoring chance. It might have been the second quarter, actually. But okay. yeah, I just yeah. thought it was a bit jittery. That's all. A little bit jittery. But yeah, I think in general, Melbourne was playing at a very high level. Yes. So it was hard to pick out anyone who you would say wasn't putting in, which... Most of the is, team was putting in. Yeah, most Absolutely. of the team was doing exactly what they needed to do. There just a couple of standouts, as always. All right, let's move to the second yes. quarter. So as I alluded to... This is where things change a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, gone are those thoughts of, uh, you know, a couple more goals and it could be a bit of a cakewalk here for Melbourne. The Bulldogs hit back early in a big way. Three goals in five minutes. Uh, first two to Trelaw from memory. And then uh, I think the next one perhaps is uh, Bontempelli. I think that is correct. I feel like Norton's in there somewhere as well. Actually, I think, yeah, I think Norton's actually the third one. So, yeah, in that five-minute period, essentially Melbourne, all the good work from Melbourne in that first quarter is basically done. Like, they're up by a couple of points, but essentially their lead is gone. The Dogs are now moving the ball very quickly, as quick as they can. And the most important thing I thought was that both in the air and on the ground, the want to attack the ball and just pressurize the situation around where they were went absolutely through the roof. So even if the ball wasn't coming in in the absolute best spot, you had their forwards just throwing themselves at it. I think I, the one I can remember off the top of my head is like Rourke Smith just making a contest when they're not really in the best position, getting it on the ground and just absolutely hunting uh, like their life depends on it. So yeah, that had really changed around from the first quarter where the dogs couldn't get any movement now they were getting more clearances and also they were finding a way to actually transition out of their back half as well so yeah it kind of just seemed like melbourne were under siege here for a bit every time the dogs went inside 50 uh, the game seemed to have completely changed i reckon from at least the first five entries they had in that quarter they scored from and it was getting a little scary i mean Trelaw kicks the first one, you sort of thought, okay, well, ground ball winning quick, fair enough. Um, but then he did it again, and then they did it again. I think those first three goals were snaps, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, and I don't know, it just it just seemed like we were a, not timid, but it just seemed like we, we just didn't have an answer for the for the relentless attack on attack on the ground ball. I, I, yeah. We, it was coming in very quick, but it was just starting to feel like the one thing that we know we can do well, you know, cut off these air balls that are coming in, we were just struggling with. Yeah, it was interesting because Melbourne was still pretty well set in these plays and those first two goals where Trelaw gets the snap away, a Melbourne player actually has the ball and is kind of half dispossessed, half gets like a handball away and both go straight to the opposition. So I think the first one is Lever and the second one is Petty. So That's Melbourne right. actually is sort of seemingly in a good position, but yeah, just uh, that relentless pressure from the dogs turns it over and uh, they get a couple of goals quickly that way. Yeah, and look, it's very hard to defend when the ball's pinging around like that, but uh, there is one team that you don't really want to let it get to the, the deck or just to a rover and yeah, it's... That's the dogs. They've got a lot of good small forwards. Yeah, and one other thing I started to notice, Melbourne's pressure did drop away a little bit. Uh, oh, yeah. So it was a little bit easier for the Bulldogs around the ball. And it just seemed that a few of Melbourne's players were just going into their shells a little bit, yep. starting to wilt under this pressure. And it was absolutely ferocious from the dogs here. Very high energy. And 
the one I'm going to single out, maybe slightly unfairly, is Fritch. A couple of the times, it looked like you could sort of see the fear in his eyes a little bit. Yep. And he got one really open look. Probably Melbourne's best chance to score other than the one goal that they got. And I think he was basically by himself, about 45, chose not to have the shot and just completely miskicked it, he- even though there was multiple players out. So... He looked a bit rattled in this quarter. He gathered that one on the hop and swung around uh, to his left and he had a good meter on him and there was definitely a chance to do something there and then just completely squibbed the kick. It was, there were, you're right, and he was quite fumbly in this quarter as well. He wasn't handling it very cleanly. I, do, I totally agree with you. That it was a little bit of fear. It was almost as if the, the fear that you thought might happen in the first quarter just came late. This could have easily passed for the first quarter for a team that was playing in the grand final for the first time ever. There are a few others that probably exhibited a little bit of this, but probably not to the same level. But yeah, it was just a general trend that the pressure dropped and the uh, uh, anxiety ramped up a bit, I think, here to coincide with the dog's good play. And it was coming out very quickly, coming out of the forward line. Yeah, absolutely. So... It really didn't seem like Melbourne was getting much benefit of having the extra man in defence, the way the Dogs are playing, just able to really attack that ground ball and uh, force a contest in the air. So, yeah, I remember writing this question at halftime. Had the Dogs broken Melbourne's system? Well, they'd done it for a quarter, but we were unsure what would happen next. So the Bulldogs, six goals to one here, had got them the lead, 7-5-47 to 5-9-39, an eight-point lead with Melbourne having a little bit of problem with accuracy, as they often do. Yeah, yeah, it was a big, big shift in this quarter. Uh, and you you knew that the Dogs would now, you know, they meant business, they're a shot. They're not going to be, uh, they're not going to go down easily. And yeah, we had a game on our hands. The next hour or so was going to be a big, big, big hour. <laughs> so what do you think the Dogs changed in this quarter? other than, you know, getting a bit of the ascendancy around the clearance and being just really, you know, hungry for the contest and for the ground ball. Did they change anything or was that enough with uh, Melbourne just dropping the pressure a little bit? It just allowed them to get the, day, the game a little bit more on their terms. I think it's a bit of both. I think that we definitely dropped our pressure a bit. We didn't, weren't running quite as hard enough, but um, yeah, the dogs just started moving it real quick. They were just... They were just going route one, get it out of the middle, get it in quick, make sure once you get it in, you get around it. And, you know, it almost as as if, yeah, they just make sure that ball stays in, kind of similar to how we like to play. Just get that in there and we'll get our looks at goal eventually, especially if we get it to ground. And, yeah, they, they forced a lot of contests. That's what they were doing inside 50. They were forcing a lot of those contests and making sure the ball was getting to ground. And we didn't quite know how, how to handle it. All right, so let's move to the third quarter now. So this is kind of a quarter of two halves. So maybe we'll approach this in, we'll do the first <laughs> half of the third and then the second half of the third. Uh, okay, so the first half. Can I just say one thing, quarter. Dan? Yeah, Did you go think halftime was too long? Um, I didn't really notice the length. Was it longer than normal? Uh, apparently it was seven minutes longer than normal. And I'm, I'm not sure 100% if this was the reason, but I feel like the reason was for that halftime entertainment. Yeah, it would have been. Uh, I didn't really notice it either. I thought it was a normal length, but now that they mention it, um, that might have been kind of annoying for the players. 
Yeah, maybe. I was probably just so nervous about what had just happened that it was nice yeah, to have a break. I, w- I wasn't really that aware of what was oh, going on. I wasn't on either. That much. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So even though Melbourne seemed to extend the tide a little bit early in this third quarter, it was still the Dogs breaking through for the first two goals of the quarter to extend their lead to 19 points. So the first one of these goals came where Melbourne looked like they were completely out. They looked like they'd won the ball back. Harms was streaming towards the 50 and was about to offload. I'm not sure who the Bulldogs player was, but he came up with a massive smother. I think it might have been Jeray. And yeah, yeah, ball quickly pinged down the other end. Uh, JJ Speckies bow in the square and snaps the goal. And geez, that was a hard watch for Melbourne supporters at this point. (laughs) Yeah, really hard watch because it was within 30 seconds. I think Fritter had that uh, shot. That snap. Um, did he hit the post? I can't remember. Yeah, uh, he did. Yeah, straight out of the center. Um, snaps it. Yeah, that would have been perfect. Nice flying start, and to go down the other end, sensational mark from Johannesson. Uh, but yeah, really, the air. You know, a lot of our lungs, I guess, just come, went deflation. And I can't remember whether it was just before or just after this, but gone. Uh, had a shot for goal. Or was this in the second? This might have been in the second. You'll be able to tell me this, Johnny. We're going Mark strongly near the boundary and yes. has his shot that swings uh, towards the goal face. And uh, for all money, it looks like it has gone inside the point post for a goal. But the umpire is very confident that it was a point. And, uh, yeah, no review. Was that in the second that, or the third quarter? That was the second quarter. Yeah, so he yes. missed that. But uh, do you want to just briefly talk about that yeah and how that sort of came right in the middle of this dog surge which yeah was a big problem for melbourne the fact that this was not a quarter goal yeah yeah very very interesting that moment um uh, i guess i'm trying to remember how he got the ball originally but was it, i think he did he get a mark i think it was a mark it was definitely a mark as yeah. a mark and yeah so max is doing his routine and coming in uh, gets a nice, you know, beautiful drop punt. Uh, it looks like it sort of arcs right over the goalpost and then goes through. Uh, and I noticed, yeah, the goal umpire doing the uh, thing that they do before the behind signal, almost as soon as the ball goes over the goalpost or whatever. And you don't usually see players completely disagree with goal umpiring decisions. I can only really <laughs> think of one. I can only think of a few times where this has happened and, in a big game, I can think of Anthony Rocker in 2002. Yeah. Uh, I can think of Libertore in that prelim. I think it was 97. But I can't think of many others where they really dis- disagree with it. And Max looked like for all money, he thought that was a goal. I've seen some. It swung a lot late, didn't it? It like, swung it a lot looked, late. It did. It looked like it was kind of going to be close to the post and then it really swung towards the goals late. So I guess it is just a matter of, you know, did it swing before or after it had passed the line? But. On the replays, it was quite hard to tell because it, it was, was hard to you know, tell. It was so high, and they didn't really show probably a better angle that they actually had. Um, but yeah, it, if if you had to call it just from the vision, I think most people would call that a goal. It, look, it was very hard to tell from where we were seeing, and the goal umpires, the closest, we're not going to say that he's an idiot because he had no idea, but he definitely had the closest view. There is a chance that maybe it could have gone directly over the post. There is that always that scenario, and a goal umpire will say that sometimes. But 
I just don't... There's a few things here. There's a few things here. I don't understand why they couldn't do a goal-scoring review for that. I know... and Yeah, it was going to be that close. The yeah. only excuse I've heard is, oh, Optus Stadium doesn't have a camera in that position. And I'm just thinking, that is what? not good enough. That <laughs> is ridiculous. not good enough. What happened to the time when they were doing the bloody... Camp, sorry, pardon my French, but the, the the camera in the goal umpire's hat and things like that, or in the post. I mean, yeah, this, that's ridiculous. If you're going to have this technology, I don't want to hear any more arguments that oh, but at that particular ground, they don't have a goal line get like last year with Petrarca and um, was it Darwin with against St Kilda? I, I don't want to hear this anymore. It's ridiculous, and I've seen some fans shots of that. Uh, I've seen a few fan videos behind those goals. Um, look, I'm not saying they're definitive, but th- they look pretty good that it was a goal. Um, and I've heard a few fans in the crowd saying they thought it might have been. I'm not saying that I know the answer, but I, I'm just... That's what I'm most annoyed about. I'm just really surprised that we've got this system in place and there's just no inkling to even use it or put the te- technology in place to use it. Yeah. it. It was strange that it didn't get reviewed, the fact that, you know... Like, even the field umpire, like, if the player is that confident and the field umpire could see that it's close, why not? Maybe they can't even do that. Like, it has to be the goal umpire's decision. But why can't the field umpire just overrule them and say, oh, you know, that was close enough. Let's send it upstairs. Well, I would like to think that that's the protocol. Like, if the go- if the field umpire wants to overrule and, and, and ask for a score review, then I would think that the field umpire has the jurisdiction to do that. Yeah, I'm not even sure if they're allowed to do it. Anyway, I don't think so either, interesting, interesting chat, but we should probably get back on track because yep. we're basically <laughs> entering the, the most important part of this of the yep. game here. All right, so just to get back into this, Bulldogs up by 19, roughly halfway through the third quarter. So they get that JJ Specky and goal that way. And then after another long kick in from English, after he gets a free, uh, Bontempelli just sort of... Uh, goes in front of a pack or gets to the drop of the ball and uh, takes another mark there, very strong. And, uh, yes, goals from that one as well. And uh, he's, I think at that point he's got two straight. And, uh, yes. yeah, or maybe three straight by that point. I think... He, he, kicked, he kicked three for the day anyway. Uh, so... Yeah, his third one was that snap, I think. Yeah. Yes. That was the third. That was about 10 minutes into the third quarter, maybe. Um, how were you feeling at that time, Dan? That's what I'd like to ask. Yeah, I I was very worried, basically. Like, the way the game was looking, you know, it was completely going against Melbourne. And, yeah, something needed to change very quickly. And what I had in the back of my mind or maybe the front of my mind was teams don't win if they're down at three-quarter time. That's <laughs> so correct. If you're 19, I mean, like in grand finals, we brought that up last week, the fact that only one team has actually won a grand final being down at three-quarter time in like the last 15 years. I do remember who that was now, Geelong in 2009. So that's the last one. And even if you go back further, it hasn't happened very often. So that was definitely in my mind thinking, you know, they're 19 down now. They need a goal or two to even have any chance very quickly. And, uh, yeah, that was kind of where my head was at. I was, I didn't have much confidence at this point, even with knowing how well Melbourne had played at various points in the year and how they could come back. But, 
the game just completely seemed to be going against them. They'd conceded, I think, eight of the last nine goals at this point, and uh, yeah, didn't have a lot of answers to Bontempelli in particular. He was doing a lot of damage. So for the first 10 minutes of this third quarter, I kind of thought, because I, I did go into halftime pretty like, slightly concerned, um, worried, if you want to say that. And the one thing that was kind of giving me a little bit of, I guess, you know, reassurance was that we had the best third quarters in the competition. And the Dogs had, I think, not very good third quarters, but pretty good fourth quarters. Good last quarters, yeah. And I kind of I was taking a fair bit of reassurance in that. I thought, look, this will probably be our quarter. If, 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 if that was our bad quarter, the second, then that's okay. Um. The way they started that quarter, uh, especially when Fritter missed and then Johansson scored, uh, the Bulldogs really controlled the game in that third quarter. They were really just um, sucking the yeah, life Melbourne out of it. Yeah, Melbourne had very few chances. Very few anything. chances. They were just controlling the first half of that quarter, burning clock. And I, I went pretty quiet for a while, and we were only 13 points down. I just, But I just felt... I could felt like the game was going a certain way and it, yeah, there was this, almost this, I guess, this smell of death happening. <laughs> and I just, I mean, let's let's be totally honest. Melbourne were in a lot of trouble when Bond kicked they that were. goal. They were in a I lot were. of trouble. Um, you got Tom McDonald, let's be honest, he was a total wash at that point. He'd really given nothing. You got Pickett, who'd really been quiet, apart from his pressure acts in the first quarter, and he had got couldn't get near. Spargo was dead quiet since that goal in the first quarter. When the ball seemed like it was in the Bulldogs' forward line, I don't know about you, Dan. It felt a long, long way away from ours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like as a logical person does, or maybe you can tell me this is illogical. I was already preparing myself for the fact that Melbourne wasn't going to win. Like it was looking that bad. <laughs> I'm yep. not sure whether you were quite there, but I, that was where I was going. I was there. Yeah. When Bontempelli yep. snapped that goal, I had, yeah, I, I just felt like it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. 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 So big problems for Melbourne. <laughs> and then you had this kind of funny thing happen on the sideline where, you know, Gorn gets tackled over the line by the smallest guy on the Bulldogs team, Caleb yeah. Daniel, and kind of holds on to him probably for half a second longer than he should and doesn't get a free. Pro- I still don't think that was a free, but it was just funny. And then you have <laughs> Daniel sort of standing over him for a second. Yeah. So, look, Dan, I'm really glad that I've seen this incident a few times since because if I only went by my first reaction of seeing it, I... It's funny how you see things when you're in the heat of the moment. I thought it was the most dirtiest act ever and everything. I thought he slung him, he's landed on the you know, the synthetic, and to rub salt into the wound, he stood over him and, and probably, you know, made some taunting comment to him. Uh, literally, if you asked me after the match, I would have said Daniel was getting two weeks. <laughs> That's how I felt. <laughs> I've watched it a lot of times since and obviously it's an accident. He does get a you know, a good, nice, powerful tackle on him. He, but he lets go, and it was an accident. I still don't like the fact that he stood over him and ta- and seemed to taunt to him. Like it was probably like a get up thing, you know. But um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it, it, I think it was. People say that it probably did nothing. It was a storm in a teacup. But I don't know. I reckon. I reckon that did sort of spark up the D's players a little bit, whether it was Daniel's fault or not. You saw guys like Petty and that coming over to to remonstrate a bit, and you know after he done the taunting i think it did wake him up just a little bit 
Melbourne had gone very passive, especially in that second quarter. And really in the third quarter up to now, they had very few chances. So whenever they had the ball, they were going long down the line. There wasn't any zip. There wasn't any There's no movement. game on. Their pressure was still good, but it had dropped from the frenetic levels of the first quarter. And uh, yeah, the game just looked like it was going the Bulldogs' way. And uh, yeah, something needed to change. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, look, I didn't think that was a free kick either, but I definitely thought that there was a little shift in that moment. Um, and something had to change. They had to get their dare back. All right, let's move to the second half of this third quarter where something definitely changes. Let's try and put our <laughs> finger on what that something is. So maybe you can help me with this, Johnny. From memory, I think Melbourne transitions it up to about 80 metres out where they get a stoppage. I think there's two marks pretty strong marks to get down the ground one might be Jackson I can't remember who the other one was but they were really struggling to get it out of the back line with any uh you know purpose and a couple of strong marks to get it all the way to 80 meters out and a stoppage there a throw in was actually a pretty good result so this happens almost 30 seconds after that incident with Daniel and Gorn uh yeah they get a stoppage up around yeah the half forward flank and one man, I've got to mention this. I don't want to. I don't want to take too long on this, but I don't know if you remember that game in 2018 against the Eagles at Optus, Dan, when we had to win that to make the finals. Uh, yeah. But James Harms has a really crucial moment there where he steals the ball off. I can't remember. It was either Will Schofield or one of the other defenders, and just lays this beautiful drop punt to Dean Kent, who kicks the goal to effectively seal that game. He does almost the exact same thing on almost the exact same part of the exact same ground in that moment. And it, I don't know. I just remember that instantly. He gets that ball, looks up, and just lays the best raking drop pun into the area of Bailey Fritch. Oh, it was Fritch who marked Yes. It. Yeah. And, yeah, Fritch goes back. Maybe not the best set shot he had all night. It was a little dicey, but it did the job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I might just take us back slightly earlier in that play. So there's the stoppage, and I think it's it's actually Jackson who double palms it down in the direction of Viney, who's attacking the ball hard but doesn't quite take it cleanly. And it kind of bobbles through a couple of dogs players' hands and gets it. It comes out to Harms, who hits the contest with pretty good speed, and yeah, absolutely laces out Fritch on the lead there. Yeah. So. Yes, fantastic bit of play when Melbourne really didn't have much going for them. I think you just nailed that pl- the passage there. Yep. Yeah, so I was just wondering what actually happened before that. Might have been a strong mark or two. But anyway, whatever they did, they did well to get it into that position. And yeah, they uh, ne- they needed that play to happen. Yeah, they, <laughs> they, they really did. To happen. Just to spark it up. So that, spark it up. So even in-game, you're hearing the commentators say again and again, that's where the game changed. And mm. when we see what happens next, it's not hard to see why. Yes. <laughs> so Fridge goes back and calmly uh, slots that set shot. And uh, there's actually two more goals to Melbourne in quick succession, uh, one to Fritch and one to Brown. And this one from Fritch is directly from a center clearance. He goes up for a bit of a specky and uh Gorn actually kind of spoils him, but Fritch lands on the mm. ground again and quickly gathers and gets the kick away in no time. So 
two goals in the blink of an eye and there's another one a short time later. So they've got those three goals back <laughs> in basically, I don't even know how long it would have been, like three or four minutes. Like, it was crazy. It was crazy. Uh, that Fritch one, you've got the centre bounce, uh, Jackson getting the hit out, Oliver getting the hard ball and getting it out to track and the rest was history. Yeah, Fritter, excellent reaction time there. Excellent reaction time to get that. And opportunist goal. Um, yeah, maybe a turn of the momentum. Uh, yeah, that was, <laughs> yeah, it was all just changing. And then so you basic- got Ben Brown after that. Sorry, Ben. Yeah. So they're basically back to even here with, I think there was maybe about five minutes left at this point. Melbourne weren't done yet either. So it was Brayshaw flinging himself back into space to mark in front of two oncoming players. Uh, and he went back and nailed that set shot from about 35, 40 metres out on a bit of an angle as well. So that was a great thing. And uh, next it was uh, Track who was uh, getting the ball on the boundary after a long kick in he'd gathered. And uh, I think it was actually Pickett who made a little bit of space for him with a bit of a hit on a Bulldogs player. So he had just that little bit more time. So yeah, Track was basically right up against the boundary, maybe uh, about 10 metres out. And uh, yeah, just tried to lay the ball across the boot, sort of a check side along the ground. Um, Yeah. And it basically just split the middle. (laughs) It was beautiful. Oh, look, I just want to go. I have to go back to Gus's goal for a second. I love the build up to this goal because he was bursting through the middle, took a few bounces. He was trying to spot up Harms, but he completely sprayed that kick out to the boundary line. It really just hit the chalk, I think, as well. Um, the they get the boundary throw in. He gets it again, and then he scrubs it inside fifty, uh, similar to how Bailey did before, actually, uh, second quarter, but. <laughs> yeah, just what happened next was just amazing. I think somehow I'm trying to remember how it came back out to him. Or no, so I think the Bulldogs player sort of, I think it might have been Daniel kind of scrubbed a kick, and then Melbourne was able to get regather it again. And I th- I'm not sure who it was, but it was a good kick. And yeah, they saw that there was just a little bit of space there that was opened up, and that was what Brayshaw was diving back into. I feel like yeah, he was in a contest. Pickett and Bowie came over, and he drifted back towards goal. And Bowie got the ball and just little chip over, and he just came in with that courageous mark, and yep, he was yep. not going to let that ball hit the ground. Dan, <laughs> <laughs> no way. Uh, yeah, it was a nice little spot up kick from Bowie as well, really just to nice. put it into the space there where it was like super congested. So that was really important there as well. I was a bit nervous of his set shot routine because I, I don't love it when players turn their back to goal. But um, <laughs> oh my goodness, he just flushed it. <laughs> and going back to that track goal. This was this was basically right at the end of the quarter. So I think there's actually like 60 seconds um, left on the clock when that play starts. So what's the best thing about kicking a goal? It goes back the to the center. center. And remarkably, in the last 50 seconds, Melbourne manages to kick two more goals from center clearances. So exiting out the front of the stoppage, uh, chains... We'll go into these in a little bit more detail later when we go through some of the key plays, but ending with both Sparrow and Oliver goaling, one from about 50 and one from 45. And yeah, to cap off, just an amazing... There's two bursts there from Melbourne where they're putting on a combined seven goals. So it was seven goals, two to two goals 
for the quarter. And in the blink of an eye, Melbourne had a 24.3 quarter time lead where with one, I think just about exactly one minute left on the clock, their lead was actually six points. So that track goal and then those two centre bounce goals basically ballooned the margin out to what was probably even then a match-winning lead. I know no Melbourne supporter would say that at that time, but a team's not coming back from 24 points down at three-quarter time in a grand final. Yes. Um, Daniel, I want to talk about every one of those goals. <laughs> briefly, <laughs> briefly. Starting from Petrarca. How does this happen? Seriously, how do you kick such a great off-one-two-steps goal to open the game up and then go Dacos in the third quarter like this? It was... That was amazing stuff. Honestly, top players rise to the occasion on the top stage when the game's in the balance. I I cannot express how important and awesome that goal was. He made it look so easy as well. Like It was the most natural thing in the world for him to do that. (laughs) It was just, it was incredible. Incredible. Just, yeah. We're going to look at, we're going to be seeing that one for, for a long time. Straight after that, as you said, Dan, ball goes back to the middle. And who is it next? It's Sparrow. Just <laughs> launching that one. Oh, just... Yeah. Uh, he would be the longest kick in the team, wouldn't he? Well, he'd be right up there. He'd be very close to it. He's got a booming boot. He would be right up there. Um, I loved his celebration, by the way. I loved all of them. Uh, but, obviously, we go back to the middle again. Uh, this one... <laughs> this, yeah. We were just in seventh heaven, weren't we? But this one, I, I'm trying to remember who got it out to Oliver. I think it, I think it was Jackson. Was it? Um, this is the benefit. Yeah. So I, I think, I think uh, Jackson palms it down. Viney flicks it out with a little toe poke. Yeah. Then um, they're kind of all running in a wave, and it's actually Jackson who gathers and flicks it over to Oliver. And yeah, with his quick. Uh, quick few steps he gets to about 45 and straightens up and drains it then when you've got a player like this with his height and moves like a midfielder how the heck do you stop a midfield that has that in it <laughs> like you, yeah not, you've got viney petrarca oliver but then you have to deal with that as well <laughs> it's, it's very difficult <laughs> very, very difficult. difficult and that was and a, like sorry yeah we kind of thought well, I think a lot of people thought, you know, what happened in the prelim against Geelong in that third quarter wasn't repeatable. But that's essentially what they did in this third quarter here. In a different way, they've come, they found a way to pile on seven goals, and a lot of it was to do with clearance. And basically, this whole the whole period of time where they're kicking these seven goals, it's Jackson in the ruck, not Gorn as well. Correct, correct, correct. And you've got stories about Max being on the bench saying, leave him in there. He's doing very well. Uh, this was just, yeah, amazing stuff. This was, yeah, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Oh, that Oliver one really just, oh, I loved that one. It was just, yeah, icing for that quarter. 24 points up, as you said. Yes, you are probably right. In any grand final, that's probably almost an insurmountable lead. But we're Melbourne fans, and it just wasn't. <laughs> but they were all over them. They were all over them. They'd gone back to levelling it up, 6-6-6, and just telling the, the midfielders, just go and win the footy. And it was, yeah, it was what needed to happen. 
These bursts are just devastating. Like, Melbourne's done this against two of the best teams in the competition. Third quarter in the prelim, third quarter here. They've got Viney, Track, Oliver, and either Gorn or Jackson. And when things start running their way a little bit, when they get their confidence up, they're just doing something that I don't think any other team can even come close to doing this, the way they're trying to do it. They're not even kicking it to their forwards most of the time. They're just running powerfully out of stoppage and just taking pot shots. Well, they're not pot shots. They're taking very good open shots from 50 or 40 meters, 45 meters out. Even when Geelong had that dominant period in round 23 where they scored, what, seven or eight goals in that quarter, it was all kicking to a forward. There wasn't really any of this, you know, taking shots from 50. I just no. don't think there's any team that can even come close to doing what Melbourne did in these two bursts here. I don't think so either. I think that if if people are saying that this is just a, f- a fluke run of play, then they're really not paying any attention because you've got all Australian calibre midfielders in that centre bounce for both sides. How did Melbourne get four clean takeaways in a row like that? It's just it beggars belief. It really just, it's special. It's very special. And the other thing about Jackson was that the dogs weren't setting up the way they usually would have. They didn't have any sort of sweeper at the back. They started, guys like Liberatore were really starting to just hunt the ball again. And it was leaving that little bit of space there. And Melbourne were just running into it. And they were taking it. Yeah, that's all they needed. That one period of the game where the dogs didn't set up as defensively at the stoppage and they yeah. paid dearly for it. And I've said this before too, Dan, but it's those it's those not it's those red time goals in a game of footy. So if you're kick if you if the game is close and you kick away in that last two minutes of a quarter, preferably something like the third quarter, it can it can change the outcome of a game completely. If you were say ten points in front and all of a sudden you get twenty four in front, well geez, it becomes a lot harder to to get that back in the fourth quarter for an opposition team. Yeah, absolutely. I can only imagine what it was like to be a dog supporter for that minute where you just put three goals in on, like, you're basically just seeing the chance of winning a grand final evaporate before your eyes in 60 seconds. That would have sucked. That would have been (laughs) a hard watch. All right, let's go to the last quarter now. So... As I said, no team had won a grand final after trailing at three-quarter time since 2009, and this wasn't about to change no. now. So uh, Melbourne probably needed you know, another two or three goals to be super comfortable. They're probably already you know, pretty comfortable, but two or three more, and they got two goals in the first three minutes. So it was Brown and Fritch uh, finding the goals, and Melbourne were just finding all sorts of space now. They were running super hard. I'm not sure whether the Bulldogs had started to drop off already. Perhaps they had, but everything for Melbourne just was now was super clean. Their confidence was sky high. They could barely do a thing wrong. And it was just a procession in this last quarter. Nine goals to one, including a goal to T-Mac after the siren. And uh, yeah, it was just... All one-way traffic, and the lead balloons out to 74 points by the end. So what's that? Uh, like a 90 or so point swing from uh, being down 19 points and winning by 74. Dan, what happened? Seriously, like, 
if you were an onlooker and you went to go and like put a pot of tea on or something, you would have missed so much of what happened. <laughs> it would have been four goals margin, then fifty points, then just like yeah, it would have been. You would have missed so much. The way they started this quarter, they just weren't going to let it slip. They weren't going to let that slip. The way they won that ball out of the middle, and then um, I think it was Sparrow with that great kick into the... This is, I think, why you need a player like Sparrow, because he can put that ball into a place where only the forward can mark it, and Benny got his hands to it. And Yeah, they just weren't going to let it go. And No, absolutely not. They kicked... I'm just thinking about now. They kicked five goals in the space of two minutes. They kicked three in the last minute of the third quarter and two in the first minute of the okay three minutes say of the first yeah. two minutes of the fourth. Like I just, I mean, <laughs> that's three minutes there. If you were thirty points down and you kicked that, you'd win the game, <laughs> or you draw the <laughs> it's game. Ridiculous. Sorry, <laughs> it's ridiculous what they were able to do in this period. And yeah, like you could see now that Melbourne had got on top. They there was just no way they were going to give the Bulldogs any type of sniff, and they came out right after three quarter time and just said, "Whack, game over. Mm. No, you're not going to give you any skerrick of hope here. Let's just end this." And that's exactly what they did. And you know they didn't stop there. And uh, I guess towards the end, it just became about who was kicking the goals. You know, Fritch goes up to six. Um, was that equaling Darren Jarman in '97? Uh, uh, he maybe? beat it. Jarman had five. So an amazing record in a grand final and uh, very straight kicking as well. I think he kicked six one or yep. six two. Uh, oh, could have been six two because of the poster. Yeah, yeah, might have been six two. But yeah, all the shots late. He was kicking after a couple of early misses, and uh, Petrarca got 40 possessions, which was going to be the record for the grand final, but then they docked him one thereafter. So I think it was uh, equal with uh, Simon Black in maybe 2003. Yeah, so that's right. you think you know what possession may have been docked here? I think that it was late in the game when he was having a contest on the wing and he got it and he kind of just lost control of the... He lost the handle on the ball and I think yep. they gave him a handball for it, but... Um, yeah, look, it probably wasn't, but uh, I don't know. I kind of wish that it was. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You look at well, this. Sorry, Dan. I just want to no, say, you, you look yeah. at the Bulldogs from their point of view, and towards the end of the third quarter, it rem- it kind of reminded me of a bit of a boxing match where it was really tight, and then one guy takes a bit of an advantage, and they're kind of you know picking him apart a bit, you know, just working him in the inside and that. And then all of a sudden, you get about two or three just big hooks or haymakers, and bang, they've gone down. They get countered. They come up. They get the the, the bell goes, and I felt like the Bulldogs were just complete. They were just bobbling around on the ropes. They've gone back to the corner. It's kind of like, are you okay to continue? You know, the coaches and the doctor, <laughs> are you okay to continue? And they're like, yeah. They come out for the fourth quarter. It's one. I feel like it's one of those situations where they come out for the fourth quarter. They're okay, but they're still seeing stars. They're just still bobbling around like, oh, yep. yeah. And, yeah, it was just the perfect situation. It's amazing, really. And, uh, yeah, Siren goes. Melbourne wins their first premiership in 57 years. And uh, how sweet it is. <laughs> how sweet it is. There's 
Absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, you were just talking about Fritsch and his six goals. When I mentioned the... Uh, I had made that special mention last week on the uh, top ten moments, uh, Darren Jarman. I never in my wildest dreams thought that I was going to see something close to that this week. Um, but, geez, yeah, what an effort. What an effort. Uh, Melbourne went from being inaccurate in the first half to clean and fumbly in that second quarter to just clean as a whistle, especially late in the third. Nothing they were touching. was It was just all clean possession. They went from you know slightly indecisive to just every decision they were making. Every single snap decision out of the middle there was just the right one. And <laughs> how did they flick the switch so quickly then? Yeah, I guess they just... <laughs> it's really hard to, it's hard to know, explain. really, isn't it? They, they just... They got the one goal they needed to get them going. That's that's the only thing I can think of. They just needed a little bit of an injection of something to give them a bit of confidence. They get another clear look at stoppage. And as soon as that happens, the game just completely flips, I think. Like, as soon as you get that first goal, and I think it's the next one. The next one, they get a clear centre clearance. It's Yeah, I think this is probably the play of the day for Melbourne. So... I'm going to relit some of these plays in a little bit more detail, yeah. but I might just quickly go to this particular play because uh, you kind of brought it up here. And I think this is probably... Everyone will bring up the harms to Fritch one is probably the most important, yep. and it probably is, but I don't think what happens next happens without the next play, which happens straight after. Let me just find... Where it actually is. I think I know what you're going to say. <laughs> All right. So this is the very next center clearance. Yep. After Fritch has just kicked that goal to get Melbourne one back after going down 19 points. So Jackson competes well in the air, allowing Oliver to get a clean takeaway. And he starts to stride away and he hands it to Petrarca, who's run forward, seeing that Oliver has won the ball. And Petrarca goes long and deep. Good thing he went to Petrarca because, you know, Petrarca's a longer kick. Yep. So he gets it really high, really deep, really dangerous. And Fritsch goes up for a hanger. And really, the only reason he doesn't take the hanger is because Gorn is in the contest as well. And one of Gorn's hands gets in the way. And the ball just kind of spills out the back. But Fritsch, as agile as a cat, lands on his feet, quickly gathers and calmly slots it on the left foot under a little bit of pressure. But, yeah, the quick gather and kick was just immaculate so after cool. going out for the specky. And it, it just this just happened in a flash. Yeah. Like, the Bulldogs have just conceded one goal. They're still The game's still mm. on their terms, yeah. by all accounts. And then, bang, Oliver, Petrarca, specky, goal. But <laughs> Bailey just looked like... He just looked like poetry in motion there, didn't he? Like, I know he didn't take the mark, but when he rose for the mark, it looked like someone that just had timed everything beautifully. Didn't quite get it. Second effort was just spot on. I just, I, I don't know. I, I, like, he, he had so much confidence in that moment had, to launch at the ball. And he had so I much have confidence. no doubt he would have marked that if Max didn't get the hand to no it. No doubt. But I don't think, it, it almost it almost made it more impressive that he didn't mark it. And uh, yeah. He just finds it on the ground so quickly and slots it. But also also to keep his feet as well. Because sometimes yeah. sometimes guys, even when they probably could stay up, they just go to the ground. He just 
doesn't go to ground at all. He's just on his feet, and that's it. He, he, like, and the gather off the off the pack. It's not the cleanest bounce, by the way. It goes kind of away from him, and he just goes, but pluck it out and bang, goal. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I think from a Bulldogs point of view, that would have really hurt. Like they've, you know, they've built this lead, and then just in in an instant, they're only a goal in front now, and Melbourne suddenly has a momentum. I think. So that that was a really important play. I think. Absolutely, hundred percent agree with you. All right, let's uh, go into a little bit more detail in some of these key plays. So I do have 10 plays. I think we'll go through this quite quickly yes. because we've already touched on quite a few um, of these. Yes. <laughs> yes. But that's okay. <laughs> um, so ones that we've already talked about a bit, I'll just go through super quickly. So the first play I want to, they are in chronological order. So this is the first play of the day, really. Well, it's quarter one, 15-23 left on the clock. It's the first goal of the game. So there's a long high kick into the 50 where Brown, or just just to the edge of the 50, where Brown is able to bring it to ground. He almost marks it, but doesn't quite. And the Dogs are able to win it at ground level. But under huge pressure from Melbourne players swarming all around, uh, they turn it over on the edge of the centre square, uh, in the centre square, it's just inside the centre square. And uh, it's actually Rivers coming through hard and quickly, who's able to win the ball and hands off to Salem. It's one of the shortest hat balls I've ever seen, but it was probably a good thing he gave it to him because obviously Salem is an awesome kick and he spots track right on the 50. I'm not sure whether the ball hits the ground or not, whether the uh, umpire pays the mark, but I think it was the right thing for Petrarca to play on here anyway. And uh, off one step pretty much, he quickly hooks the right foot around and with a powerful kick that hits the back's fence, it's a goal, yep. and uh, what a goal to start the game! Yeah, I, I didn't. I don't know if it was a mark. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Might might have been, but um, yeah, it was really. It looked like I actually thought it was a mark, but it could have been one of those like bump ball ones where it kind of looks like a. I mark. I thought it was more bump ball. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it probably was play on, but Petrarca, whatever the case, he played on in like half a second. And, uh, yeah, it gave him a great chance to just to get the shot away. And he was very balanced. I think sometimes when Petrarca takes his shots, he rushes to the extent where he's actually not balanced when he takes the shot. But yeah. for this particular one, he was definitely balanced and got the power into the kick and, uh, yeah, absolutely flushed it. And because he used to raise the ball quite a lot before he'd take a kick, that would kind of open the opportunity up to be more off balance. But, um, yeah, no, it was fantastic. That was just a nice... Quick reaction time, knew what he had to do, and bend it. All right, let's go to play number two. So now we're at 7 minutes 30 left on the clock in the first quarter. Two goals to one the way of Melbourne. Ben Brown competes well on the wing on the edge of the square, and it's actually gone of all people who roves the uh, crumbs here and wasting no time, bangs it as far and long as he can with his wrong boot, which would be his left, into a vacant 50. As Cozzy tracks it back against two dogs' opponents, uh, he looks to be outnumbered, but, you know, this is kind of what Cozzy's made for. Three pressure acts to make life hell for these Bulldogs players, and then the last of these pressure acts is a diving smother that ricochets the ball to Jackson, who has Spargo running towards goal and goals from the square. Yeah, man. That that goal doesn't happen with that picket, in my opinion. No, no chance. Right. That ball should have really, by rights, should have been cleanly taken by a dog's defender. 
and chipped to someone to market and relieve pressure. There's just, you know, it's a player that can ch- change very routine plays. It's weird. It, it, but, yeah, that, that pressure there, I think he gets a hand on it as well, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, he does, He yeah. absolutely does. And great goal. Great goal. So, Pickett didn't have many stats, especially not for the whole game, really, but I think his impact, particularly in this first quarter, was pretty high when Melbourne's pressure was at its best and they were creating these turnovers, and he was a big part of that. Definitely. And he did do a few things in the other quarters as well. It just, I guess it was one of those days where the ball just wasn't quite fall, falling for him or for whatever yeah, reason sometimes the small forwards aren't getting to the exact right spot where the ball is falling. Like, there were other players getting the ball, so it didn't necessarily no. matter, but what he could control... He was controlling it and putting in awesome effort. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, that was his goal as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's move now to the second quarter. So we have uh, 17-15 on the clock here, left on the clock. It's now four goals to three Melbourne's way. So the Bulldogs have come back a bit having slammed on a couple of goals. So we have Bontempelli and Trelaw sharing the ball, getting it cleanly away from the centre square stoppage there. And uh, Bontempelli is striding all the way to the edge of the square before offloading with a low bullet kick that just goes through the outstretched hands of Johannesson. But Norton is able to gather on the ground cleanly and in a flash he's snapped the ball and put through another goal. And that was the third of those three goals in that five-minute patch at the first in the second quarter there. And Melbourne's lead is gone. Yup. Yup. That one probably that one probably rang the alarm bells the most. Just cause you kind of felt like our back line was at sea at that point. Yeah, definitely agree with that. That yeah. was really worrying. Like they just conceded a couple of goals where it still looked like they were kind of set up for to try and defend it yeah. and it just hadn't worked for whatever reason. But this one, the Bulldogs had really done something that Melbourne couldn't have any control over here. Yeah. They were pretty helpless here. They did. And like it is a bit like that with centre bounce goals. But yeah, this is where the Bulldogs were really starting to stamp their authority yep. on the game. And uh, they'll get a few more towards the end of this quarter as well. So let's go now to 60 seconds left on the clock in the second quarter. We have six goals to five, the Bulldogs' way. English earns a free kick roughly 70 metres out. Gorn has apparently pushed him out. It's probably there. Sometimes you see those let go, but it was probably there. Yep. English roosts in a high ball inside 50, and Bondempelli as he does several times throughout this game, gets himself into the exact right spot of the ball drop and takes a strong mark in front of the looming pack. And he goes back and slots the goal from a tricky position to give the Bulldogs a uh, roughly, I think it's an eight-point halftime lead. So the Dogs have more goals than Melbourne. I think it's seven to five now, but Melbourne's got all those points. So it's only an eight-point lead. Yeah, yeah, that was the that was also the moment when you kind of thought, what is going on with our back six at the moment? Because that, you know, up until that point, you could say, oh, but it's coming in so quick. Oh, but this and that, it's ground ball pressure. That, that one didn't. <laughs> this this was a free kick. This was a set play, dead ball situation, if you want to call it that. 
and they just pierced us there and it was a mark inside 50. We were just leaking like a sieve. Yeah, very worrying. You can't defend the last 60 seconds, although you could say the same thing for the Bulldogs the last 60 seconds of the third quarter. Those 60 seconds will get you. Yeah, it's a game of inches. <laughs> All right, now let's go to the third quarter. 18.30 left on the clock. It's now seven goals to five, the dog's way. Uh, Harms looks completely out as Melbourne won a big contest in the centre to get the ball going their way. A huge smother from the dogs looked to be goal-saving as Melbourne had plenty of players goal-side. The dogs then quickly transitioned the ball down the wing. Smith receives and flicks the handball on to Trelaw who runs before launching to the square, getting just enough on the kick to reach the specking JJ, who gets the perfect set on Bowie, who's a little upset because uh, Johansson has used the hands to get a bit of uh, leverage there, but you're always going to pay the mark there. And it's a simple <laughs> kick for an AFL player. Snap around the corner from very close range. Goal. Yeah, look, it would have taken a very brave umpire to... Um, to take that off him there. Uh, I think it's a great mark. And, uh, yeah, pretty, uh, yeah, definitely highlight material. This, I found this moment, I think we might have talked about this already, so I won't go into in too much detail. This was hugely deflating Massive. as a Melbourne supporter. They look completely out, looking for a way back into the game, and Bulldogs just transition it straight out the other end and Massive. get a goal. I, somehow, I feel like when a player... This is kind of like bringing back memories of uh, um, when uh, Gorn is getting speckied by Flying Ryan in that West Coast game a couple of seasons yeah. back, and then they get the winning one of the goals to get them the win there. It's kind of reminds me a bit of that. Like there's something just about being speckied to concede a goal. It just makes it that much worse. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Especially the last time we played the dogs, uh, when um, Cody Waitman took that big mark, just the oh, it's raising yeah. raising the roof now, and it's it just feels worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, and this so that gets them out to twelve points, and then we have the Bont snap goal uh, to get them out to nineteen. So. Uh, that was a stoppage goal there. I think it, originally when we were talking about that, I might have said it was him marking strongly, but it was actually a stoppage the goal snap, there. Yeah. His, his last one of their... They had a chain of possessions around the 50 and then eventually got it to Bont, who snapped the goal. Um, okay, now let's go to 9.30 in left in the third quarter. So we might go through these ones quite quickly because we've kind of been through yes. what happens yep, with yep, Melbourne yep. here quite quickly, but there are four goals here. So let's go through these quite quickly. So now we are nine goals to five, the dog's way. Remember, Melbourne has the extra points, so there's only three goals down. Only. It's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Jackson double hand palms it down to Viney, who couldn't get the clean takeaway. Neither could a couple of dogs players as the ball bobbled around Melbourne's way going towards their goal. Harms took the ball at speed and got the perfect kick to hit Fritch on the lead, 25 metres out on a 25-degree angle. Fritch couldn't help but mark the kick. It was that good. And he calmly went back and nailed the set shot from the wrong side for the Fritch fade. That's when you know he's kicking well exactly. when he's spinning him from that side. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. And clinging on at that point, but a much-needed goal. 
Absolutely. And I don't think, like, for me, knowing what I know now, I wouldn't want anyone else kicking that other than Fritch. No, 100%. Kicking the goal to get you back in the game. Maybe Brown, but I still think Fritch is probably a better kick now. Brown, I feel, is really reliable in his sort of, like, 40 meter range yeah. as long as he's not on too much of an angle yeah he's and if, if he's if he's 30 meters out even on a bit of an angle i think he's a really accurate kick in that sort of range but 45 so, degree plus maybe not so much yeah, yeah yeah so i would still i think i would trust fritch more his technique has improved markedly definitely. over the season definitely um you know obviously maybe t-mac but that's also not that's he's a right footer i guess so yeah yeah i'll take fritch yeah fritter good to get in his hands Okay, so from the very next clearance, it's now nine goals to six. Jackson competes well, allowing Oliver to get a clean takeaway. Striding away, he hands the ball to a running Petrarca, who gets it in deep. Fritch goes up for the hang, but Gorn's hand gets in the way. Fritch lands on his feet and strolls into an open goal very quick with the gather and kick. So we did go through that one very quickly as well uh, before. So let's keep going. We now have 60 seconds left on the clock. And uh, it's nine goals apiece. Melbourne with a narrow lead with the extra points. Ben Brown thumps in a raking kick into a mass of players in the pocket. It spills out the back towards Petrarca. And Pickett puts on a big block where the looming Bulldogs player is now sat on his backside. And Track has a little bit more room to wheel and go around on his right foot, the outside of it, with an arrow straight dribble kick that skims along the surface like a stone on the water towards the center of the goal and what a beautiful sight it is that that, that is the perfect description of it dan it's it skimmed <laughs> like if you're doing skimming at a lake or something yeah, yeah skimming it, a little exactly, rock. yeah that's exactly how that it ball just, is. usually when someone does a dribble kick and i know it's kind of the type of dribble kick he does you know it'll go it'll track like one way than the other it doesn't go completely straight no. you know what i mean no, it doesn't. so yeah. like but this kick comes off the, coming off the right side of the boot is just perfect straight line do 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 yeah just like just like that stone would be yeah. if you're trying to skin one oh perfect love it <laughs> all right so uh now we have our two last three quarter time goals uh with 47 seconds left on the clock. Now we have 10 goal to 9 lead the D's way. Uh, the center cir- In the center circle, Viney gathers and flicks a handball out to the running track, who gets it onto the running Oliver. Sparrow in space, just outside 50, receives before roosting it. And on the goal line, a great shepherd from T-Mac ensures that the long kick makes it over the line. Yeah, underrated shepherd that actually. Yeah, I think a Bulldogs player probably would have been out of touch that. So, although, because Sparrow was a fair way out when he launched yeah. that, it was definitely outside 50. So, he needed the help of that little shepherd. Yeah, there. I'd say it was about maybe 52 or something. If you, yeah, having a guess. But great goal. And last play, I'd say in hindsight, this is probably the match winning play just to get that four goal lead going into three quarter time. 30 seconds left on the clock. Jackson wins it down in the ruck. Viney manages to get a little kick off the ground to get it going Melbourne's way. And now Melbourne is running in a wave. They've got Oliver, Jackson, Viney all running towards goal. And you actually even see uh, Sparrow come into frame who 
could have received the ball as well. It's amazing. Oh. And it's actually Jackson who gathers the ball off the ground and with all his agility, easily gathers and flicks the handball over to Oliver, who's now streaming towards goal. And from 45, steadies with a long, straight kick. And essentially, the game has been put to bed in 60 seconds. Track, Sparrow, and now Oliver have ended the Bulldogs' flags hopes. The running in numbers, is, yeah, you're right. It's amazing there. And I just remembered that about Sparrow also being there. I reckon because Oliver fed him the last one, he might have said, all right, you go now. <laughs> I don't know. He'd probably not, but yeah, it would be funny to think about. I don't think I've ever seen that. Like, you see teams run in waves, but out of a stoppage. Center out of a center stoppage. stoppage <laughs> where, like, somehow... So you've got, you've got Jackson, you've got Oliver, and you've got Petrarca all coming out basically in a line. From like a 100-meter sprinting stance almost, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, it begs the question... Oh, sorry, it was actually Viney with them there. Oliver Jackson and Viney. Yes. They're all they're essentially by themselves. Yeah. Like where are the where are the dogs opponents? Like are they trailing in that much? Like I know these guys are quick, but like where are the dogs opponents? And then even, you know, Sparrow coming in. Where's his opponent? You know, like I actually <laughs> I'm actually not sure because when you look at it, you can only really see Liberatore on the screen chasing. Like everyone's just I don't know, everyone's just cooked themselves or something. I'm not yeah, I've got no idea. No idea. It is like the last 30 seconds of the quarter, so yeah, maybe, maybe a bit yeah. of fatigue there. And maybe, But, like, it's just amazing to see, you know, Melbourne players running that hard and then the Bulldogs players essentially just non-existent in that play. Maybe it's just adrenaline. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I don't think that took too long just to recap some of those plays, but I'm glad we got that in there because, you know, when you go, if anyone is going to listen to this in, like, a year, five years' time, whatever it is. You know, it's great to have the chat, but I think as well as that, you want to actually know, you know, what actually happened in these plays. And you can watch it, but, you know, it, there's something different about a description of these plays and just putting yourself in that moment and, you know, how it was experienced. So yeah. I'm glad we made some time no, to me too. do uh, a bit of a play-by-play there. Oh, Hopefully there great. wasn't too much overlap. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> All right, so what are we at? We're at roughly an hour 25, so we do have a few questions to finish off with here. So, uh, yeah, as we like to do, we've gone through the game, but, you know, there's always uh, some threads you can pull out from a game to uh, delve in a few different directions. So these questions have been vetted by Johnny. They've got your tick of approval, so Uh, (laughs) hopefully... Hopefully you guys enjoy them. All right. What does a forward have to do to win the Nom Smith? Six goals to Fritch is not enough to tackle uh, to topple uh, Petrarca, who wins it with his 39 possession two-goal game. It's a really, really good question. Um, because he was, you know, he was just clearly second in the voting. But, yeah, it's always hard to beat a dominant midfield performance, I guess. And... It's a, it's a shame because when you look at some of these numbers, I mean, 13 disposals, 10 kicks, 5 marks. I mean, it was everywhere. He was deadly. You would say that he was decisive in the outcome of the game. But, yeah, I, 
I'm not sure. Like when you think of those Norm Smith judges, they've clearly, and we probably also think this too, that they've clearly gone, okay, it's definitely Petrarca first, Prish second. And there's got to be a reason why everyone's doing it then. Yeah. So in that recap we just went through, it's clear that Fritch probably kicks the two most important goals of for Melbourne in the whole game. The harm the harms receiving one and the one he gets off the spec. Off the pack, yeah. I think we can agree they're probably the two most important goals. I agree with that, yes. Yeah. So he's kicked the two most important goals. He's kicked four more, yet not one judge gave him the three votes. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting. For the record, I would have given Petrarca the votes as well. But I would have too. I think we're living in an era where the game is set up for the best midfielders to absolutely thrive and yes. affect games and impact games in the way that they can do it to the best of their ability. Everything is set up around them. And I think if you look back at the Nom Smith medalists over the last five years in particular, we're not getting many of those situations now where uh, you know a defender is bobbing up yeah, or, or even like yeah. a half forward or a halfback flanker. It's really not happening much at all now. Like if you go back to 2017, obviously a lot of these are dusty. 2017, dusty. 2018, shoey. 2019, dusty. 2020, dusty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 2021, track. And then if you go back a little bit further, 2016, Johannesson, and he kind of, he kind of almost fits the mold as well because he's a, he was playing as a half back. But the reason he got that award, which I actually disagreed with, was he just racked up the possession. Yeah, and I guess so the dash and carry kind of thing. It's but, kind yeah. of in the same mold. Like you could have given it to the influential Ruckman, didn't happen. Go back before that, uh, and then you get Rioli, which is. A little bit different, but yeah. So what have we got? The last six years there, basically, it's a midfielder's award now. Yeah, I mean, you look at the ones that Hodgie won as well. Um, does does that kind of relieving leadership driven at the time? I guess he was more of a, a halfback sort of player, maybe pinch hit midfield. That kind of player is not going to get a look in now. I mean, it, it's usually the dominant. Uh, clearance machine, I guess, break away from contests, like almost the Chris Judd mould, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I guess I'm not, I'm not saying a back or a forward couldn't win it, but no. what I think almost has to happen for a back or a forward to win it is the midfield has to be sort of evenly spread a bit, a bit more. If yeah. there is a dominant midfielder, basically just give it to them. You can't compete with that as a back or a forward, no matter what you're doing, really. It seems like that. So. So only a year where it's a bit more even through the midfield, then you can probably get a look in. But if there is a dominant midfielder who's getting over 30 possessions and is kicking goals, I think you're pretty much going to be winning it every single time. So, yeah, I know a lot of people like to put on their Nom Smith bets. So if you're going to do that in the future, my advice would be to you would be to put it on the most impactful midfielder and don't really go too much outside of that because, uh, yeah, if you're using history as a judge in the last six years, then, you know, these backs and forwards aren't going to win it if there's a dominant midfielder. And, you know, when you've got a game that includes Petrarca, Oliver, and Bontempelli, and even you could probably throw McRae in there to a lesser extent, if one of those guys has a 30-possession game and kicks a couple of goals, they're going to win it. Yep. And chances are one of them is going to do that. So, you know, you're, I think you're almost wasting your money betting on anyone else at the moment. 
Well, let's just quickly have a look at, at the voters then of this Norman Smith medal. So you've got yeah, let's do you've it. got Luke Hodge, you got Harry Taylor, you got Tanya Armstrong, who I think is a Perth media personality, you got Andrew Cracker, and you got Cal Toomey. There's a bit of a mix there with I guess what you'd think maybe each one values and I'm still just a little bit surprised to see maybe someone like Andrew Cracker, who was, I guess, a, a small forward, maybe not yep. go to Bailey Fritch for the three. Not go to yeah. Fritch. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Maybe I'm blowing this out of proportion a bit. Maybe I am too, but yeah. <laughs> I, just think, I just think the odds are so heavily in the midfield's favour now yeah. that to put a... To back anyone for Norm Smith who's not a midfielder is almost crazy. <laughs> it almost is. And it's along the lines of the Brownlow, really. I mean, it's, yeah. Okay, that, that's a good segue into the next question. What award has the higher value, a Norm Smith medal or a Brownlow medal? Yeah, I'll, so, I love this question. Uh, maybe two parts to this. Which do you value more highly and which do you think the players value more highly? I... And look, it's taken a long time because I've, I I still gave the Brownlow a lot of, I guess you know credit and respect where it was deserved in that for a, for a while. It still is a a very reputable award, but I've definitely over time come around, especially after Dusty's efforts. I've definitely come around to the idea that maybe the Norm Smith is what the players want to win, and. Maybe just a, a better measure of when we go through these arguments of who the best players of all time are. I think you can't beat playing the best, being the best on ground in the biggest game of the season. I just, I think big time players perform in big moments, and that's what Christian Petrarch has shown here. And I think he's deservedly got that mantle now as one of the best players in the league. Yeah, I agree. If I was a player, I would want the Norm Smith medal. I want to be the best player on in the most important game. I think, yeah, I'm not sure whether in time it will be regarded more highly than the Brownlow, like externally. Yeah. I think the Norm Smith has always been, you know, a very coveted award and gets its due recognition. But yeah, I think especially when you look back on it in 10 years, like what is actually more important was... Andrew McLeod's best on ground in like the 97 mm. grand final, was that more important or was Mark Rusciuto's Brownlow more important in whatever year that was? I don't even remember. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a great, great way to put it. I think, yeah, you look, you look back at those years and just, yeah, I mean, I, I know it's a bit unfair on who the real best and fairest is in the year and that they didn't get to play in the grand final, but you know, football's about playing finals and it's about playing grand finals and it's about the cream rising to the top and I mean we're not saying ditch one you know but no no definitely but, um, not yeah I, I just think I am starting to pay more attention to the Norm Smith winner of the year than than the Brownlow I mean let's get Ollie Wines on the line and ask him would he prefer his Brownlow or would he prefer a Norm Smith this year <laughs> like I think well, I know what he's gonna say yeah like <laughs> It's hard for the player to separate it, right? Because if you're winning the Norm Smith medal, 90% chance you've also won the that's, grand final. So that's what I'm alluding to, yeah. yeah. Yeah, You can't really separate those two things. But I just think we should. it should be at least level with the Brownlow in terms of prestige. If, it, if not, my opinion, it should be above it. But, yep. you know, 
the footy public make up their own mind, but I just think the value of a Nomsmith medal and, you know, performing on the biggest stage, you know, people remember what happens in grand finals and more than likely they're going to remember who the Nomsmith medalist is. And, you know, for a given year, are you going to remember the Brownlow medalist? Maybe, maybe not. But I think you link the Nomsmith medal to the grand final and the grand final gets remembered and you want to be the best on the be- on the most important day. So tick of approval for me from the Norm Smith. <laughs> That's it. And um, just to add to this, I think something like the Gary Ayres medal will get a lot more traction in years to come. I think it's only been around for five years. Uh, but the best player in the final series, I think that, that should get a lot more recognition as well. I really do like that award. One problem I have with it is if you play more finals, for example, the Bulldogs played four, yeah. the Melbourne three, like they don't have a good way of weighting that. I think you almost have to actually weight the votes for the game. Say you're a te- you're a player who played in four games. You almost have to take a ratio of that number of votes and put it over three games. So basically divide your number of votes as if you were play. You make them worth less across the four games because basically most teams are only going to play three. You know what I mean? Yes. And you've just nailed that because Jack McRae's won the medal. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So that's I think that's a Extra glaring game. problem. Yeah. So you basically, yeah, if you have a team coming from outside the top four, then then you know a team a player from that team is so much more likely to win the award, which I think is a problem for the award. You shouldn't get rewarded just because you can play an extra game. It makes no sense. <laughs> I agree. And look, I'm not begrudging McRae, but McRae no, had his quietest game of the finals in the grand final. He never drops under below, like, below 30 touches, and he had 26. Yeah. So, you know, logic doesn't often win out, but if you're being logical, that's how you'll do it. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, I mean, you have to ask. Take one of his, take one of the other games out. Does he win it? Like, you're right. I think you're definitely right. All right. Next question. Did the dogs give themselves the best chance they could to win this game? Um, hard question. Uh, it, is a, it is a hard question. I'm not really sure if they did. I'm not really sure if they did. I think that in that third quarter, we talked about this last week, Dan, we said that the Bulldogs' best chance to really beat Melbourne was they were going to have to speed it up at times and they were going to have to um, be a, you know try and catch us off guard with a lot of our a lot of their ball entry and they did that for a, that was exactly what they, they did right they did, in the second did that for a lot of the game and in the second but and at the time I was very scared of this and I thought well they they're controlling a bit more this first part of the third quarter and it was 10 minutes in and all that stuff but I'm starting to think now would they have been better off really trying to just keep catching us off guard, get a few more goals in there. Because really, in hindsight, it's easy to say, but it, they were going to need to do a fair bit to beat us. And they probably needed to slam on another goal or two to really break our back. And it didn't happen. I'm just wondering. Yeah. I'm just wondering. It might not, Maybe they did all they could, but I'm just I'm thinking about that. I, I also think that they bought way too much into this whole Max Gorn thing. And they put a lot of their efforts into that, uh, and I don't. I think they got really caught napping a bit um, off, you know, in the coach's box and on the field when it came to Jackson's influence in the ruck. And yeah, I think 
I think I think he was out coached on the day, Beveridge as well. It's interesting. My initial instinct with this one was, yeah, they gave it their best shot. They got 19 points up. You know, they did a lot right in the second mm. after being blown away in the first. And I think they did do a lot right, but I do take your point that if they had the courage to continue to take the game on in a similar way in that third quarter, that probably was in hindsight their best chance to win the game. If they could have put on three or four goals in that period instead of two, then the game would have been close to being over. So I know it's easy to say in hindsight, but we both did agree in the preview pod that that was their best chance and they'd sort of shown themselves that it was their best chance. I know it was probably a very taxing way for them to play, but if they were going to win the game, you're right. I think they had to make slightly more use of that dominant period at the start of the third quarter. I just think that, look, I, I agree mostly there. Like I think that they probably had their shot, but um, I just there's just a few of these things that I wonder about. And and they they thought they could do the thing with Shaki again, going to leave it. It worked for a little bit. It would probably work better than I thought it was going to work, but we knew it was coming and there was a lot of moments where we had guys sort of shepherding Shaki off the contest. I think Pickett even got back there at one point and did it. Um <laughs> And, yeah, I just think that they um, – it's hard to say this because it's really hard to win a grand final. But I think if, if anyone was a step behind in the decision-making, I think it was it ended up being the dogs. All right, next question. Was Melbourne's third quarter surge the most powerful period of play you can remember in a grand final? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I can't think. I honestly can't think of anything better right now. Um, no, I, I can't. I, can you, Dan? I literally can't. The only thing that I think even comes close is when you have these absolute blowouts, like in, uh, you know, uh, Geelong versus Port or Brisbane versus Collingwood in one of their, you know, grand finals there, where. The opposition is just getting absolutely torched. But this is different because the other team was in front yeah. for one thing and the Bulldogs were playing well. Yes. They weren't coming up a, against an opposition who wasn't able to get to the level. So I think that in itself just puts this at a whole nother level and the I fact that so. they just scored so quickly. And uh, I think it's... I heard a stat going around that it's the first time ever that there's been 100 points scored in the second half of a grand final. So they're breaking all sorts of records. And uh, just to have that in your arsenal when you're down, almost down for the count, is quite amazing. (laughs) I I heard something, I heard a stat that if you, if Melbourne only, pardon me, if Melbourne only had their last quarter scoring for the whole game, the Bulldogs would have won by four points. <laughs> so they would have made a game out yeah. of it even then. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> All right. Next question. What will the Melbourne Premiership team be remembered for? So this is a bit of a hark back to our preview pod where we were talking about uh, the trademark of the grand final winner. So now that we've seen it, how will we remember this Melbourne Premiership team? Both for the day that they put out and managed to get it done but i guess also for the season that got them there oh uh, look 
a lot of what I said last week uh, with, you know, this is an amazing system, amazing, amazingly well-drilled team that uh, is tough. You know, they're not going not gonna to lie down. But I think even more so, a team that just thrives on adversity. I mean, when the going gets tough, that they kind of turn the screw further. You know, that there were moments when they wilted a little bit, but overall, you can trust this team to... This is something I've never seen in a Melbourne team before. You can trust this team to just keep going and going again and going again. And it's just... Yeah, they don't know when to quit. I don't know where that really changed in the mentality. Maybe it was when Darren Burgess came in and they had to keep doing all this, you know, just relentless fitness training. And yeah, maybe those pre-seasons are just... Maybe it broke them. Maybe it broke them for the better <laughs> mentally. It was like, whoa, geez, well, this is all we know now. Because once again, and I think I said this last week, but if there was a fifth quarter, then Melbourne could have played it without a doubt. There's no doubt about that. And... They just, yeah, they're just the energizer bunnies, I guess. And so they'll be remembered for that too. High energy, uh, high pressure, uh, suffocates you with the deep defense and they'll be remembered for winning the flag. Yes. <laughs> That's a good thing to be remembered yes, for. Yes, What do you reckon? So I do remember something I said on an earlier podcast where something along the lines of there's going to be a point in the final series where it looks like it's not going to happen for Melbourne. And, you know, as a supporter, you just got to grit and bear that. And, you know, even if that's going to come, you just got to keep the faith and, you know, it's just part of the journey. You did mention <laughs> so the journey. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So probably wouldn't have guessed it was going to come in the grand final. Maybe. Yeah. Well, like you never know, but yeah, I think that's an, it's part of this as well. Like, this was I know it's a 74 point win but there was there was definite jeopardy here you could definitely see Melbourne losing this game and that definitely makes the whole thing sweeter and especially how emphatic the response was in terms of what will the premiership team be remembered for obviously the system is immaculate and you would argue that the dogs actually went a fair way to actually picking the system apart in this game. Mm-hmm. Yet Melbourne still had a response. I'm not necessarily thinking that this is what everyone will remember this team for, but what I'm going to remember it for is just their relentless attack when it matters most and ability to pressure and work for their teammates. And they've just got so many ways to hurt you. They mm. can hurt you by turning it over. They can hurt you from clearance. They can hurt you by rendering your forward attacks null and void by getting the defense into the exact right position. They're taking the game on. Like A lot of people are talking about Melbourne as this dour team that can't score or doesn't have that many options. It couldn't be further from the truth. Every one of their forwards is capable of kicking multiple games, uh, goals in any one game. There's so many ways they can score. And this is what we were talking about in the preview pod as well. Like, there's so many things that Melbourne could do or that the Bulldogs had to counter in this game. And I think that's kind of what cost them a little bit here because they kind of dealt with Melbourne's system in a way. They were able to score in their way to counter that. But what they couldn't contend with, ultimately, in that first quarter, they couldn't contend with the turnover game, that relentless pressure and ability to score in turnover. And in the third, they couldn't compete with Melbourne's 
clearance dominance mm. and ability to score from those clearances. So, and I suppose you could argue, you know, in intervening periods, the defensive structure worked to different extents, but essentially they broke the Bulldogs using two things that weren't even their master defensive plan. So I think that's what I'll remember most, just the fact that this is a team that can hurt you in so many different ways and they're just going to be bloody hard to beat. They were on this day and, you know, no one knows what's going to happen going forward. But if they can maintain anywhere like this level going forward into the years to come, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with one way or another. Absolutely. I think Melbourne in the last, at least the last month and a half, really showed that they that there's a few strings to the bow. They're, I guess, a multi-pronged attack, if you want to call it that. Um, it seemed like that for a while. There was a lot of the time during the year, especially when we were, you know, the, the few games that we lost, you and I would talk about it to each other. We'd say, oh, look, it's, it's all well and good having this plan A where you've got to drop the extra behind the ball and have your sweeper kind of thing, take away from the contest. But it can't be the only thing. You can, no team ever wins a grand final purely on their plan A. And it's just we've just shown now that we can adapt to the game. We can make those decisions. I, I was never really sold on Simon Goodwin as a match day coach. But, you know, he's got the right guys around him. I think he's learned a lot about what it takes to... Um, yeah, yeah, be a good match day coach and, and make because he's always had good philosophies. But I just it seemed like decisions weren't being made as quickly as they could be. Um, I still remember a game last year where we put Oscar McDonald up forward and thought that was the decision that was going to change the game. <laughs> but he's improved so much on his match day coaching, and yeah, it in a way it kind of reminds me a little bit of those those Hawthorne sides in that there was there were just different there were different ways to string the cat. Like sometimes it was with the, you know, the zone or the rolling zone, whatever. And then sometimes you, you could, they could quickly turn it into a man on man type game sometimes when they needed to. Yeah. They were adaptable. They were adaptable. I feel like Melbourne really became adaptable. And now I'm, yeah, I'm just convinced that whatever tool it is for the moment, they just take it out of the toolbox. Excellent. Would Melbourne have won this game without Luke Jackson? So obviously I'm referencing his influence in the second half of the third quarter where he basically rucks the whole uh, backside, back end of that quarter where Melbourne has their dominant period slamming on seven goals. So just for a little bit of context here, he's not getting beaten in the ruck. He's not necessarily winning all the hits down to a great position, but what he's doing is he's making sure that Stefan Martin can't influence the play and can't necessarily, uh, yeah, well, he can't get it going Bulldogs way at all. And once the ball hits the ground, he essentially becomes another midfielder. I know it's an easy thing to say, but he's that agile that it's basically what he is. So does this happen if Gorn is in the ruck for this 10-minute period here, Johnny? Oh, it's so, so subjective. It's it's really hard to say, oh, we wouldn't have done it if it was just gone in the ruck because who knows, who knows. But really, and, it, and because of what happened, it, it's it's just, it's a real difficult one. But all I can really say is it was just such a really good period for Luke Jackson. Like it, 
you know, yeah, like you said, he wasn't necessarily winning the hitouts, but he was negating Martin to an extent. But then he was his second effort and his attack on the ball after that. It was another midfielder. It was just an extra midfielder there, and it's really. Funny. And he was winning some of the hits. Oh no, he, he was, was. He was winning definitely winning them him. down. Um, but I guess to advantage, maybe some of them were. But uh, he, he just he, he, they weren't ready for I, it. I mean, we we I think. The one thing he did was he made sure the ball never really went past the center circle, the Bulldogs way. Exactly. So even if he wasn't winning the ruck contest, look at the vision. The ball never goes back further than the center circle. Yeah. So that's that's one of the biggest things, I think, because all Melbourne's stoppages coming out of the center in this period were all going straight through the, the front of the stoppage. Yep. So by not conceding the ball going back too far, it was a lot easier for Melbourne to get the ball going their way and just slice through the centre there. Exactly. They were all, if anything, they were all north-facing hitouts, if it makes sense. <laughs> and if not, he was sort of collapsing it into the, the not the, I won't call it the pocket because that's a, you know, too confusing, but just into that in-close space where our midfielders yeah. could get to work. Um, but it's, it's really hard. It, the funny thing is, though, when you think about it, during like the, all the talk in the lead up to this game was how are the Bulldogs going to nullify Max Gorn? How are they going to do it? How are they going to do it? We've got Stefan Martin in. He's the guy who's going to do it. He's the disruptor. He'll do it. And it's really funny because it ended up almost being Jackson being the disruptor for Martin in that period. <laughs> he, What's he going to do to throw him off? And no one talked about it. And usually that's what happens in grand finals. It's the thing you don't <laughs> see coming. Something bobs up. You always get hit by the punch you don't see. <laughs> I think, like, Gordon still had a good game, but I think Martin did definitely nullify him, and he kind of knew how to play him, I think. Like, they did, they were teammates at Melbourne a long yeah. way back, and I think Martin actually did a pretty good job I think he did too. to actually nullify uh, Gordon's effectiveness in the ruck. But obviously, they hadn't planned anywhere near as much for Jackson, no. and it really showed. <laughs> it really did show. And I think, in hindsight, I just think that was a bit of a mistake. I think... They treated Max, and as you should, obviously, but they treated Max like he wasn't human. They were thinking about all the negating tactics they were going to do. You had Lockie Hunter coming out and making some really cryptic comments about uh, nullifying Max before he can impact a stoppage or impact a contest. A lot of people bought into that thinking it meant some other things, but I don't know. I just thought it was cryptic, that's all. And you could tell where the Bulldogs' heads were at in the lead-up. It was, we're thinking about number 11 for Melbourne, and yeah, we've got a, we've done our homework and we, we think we can stop him, and we reckon that if we stop him, we can stop Melbourne. I think that was their attitude. Yeah, did give him a focus, but yes, perhaps not enough focus on Jackson. And I think a few people have been saying this uh, in the podcast space at least, but it seems like no one's been talking about Luke Jackson through these finals, even though like he hasn't had the biggest finals up. I, the grand final is definitely his most influential, yes. but he, he's been sold in the other ones. But I think, and we've talked about this earlier in the year as well, so we don't have to go into it in a lot of detail, but Melbourne is just such a better side with Jackson in it to help Gorn out. And he doesn't have to play you know, 80% ruck time anymore. He can rest forward. He They can chop and change when something is not quite working or someone seems to be getting a little bit on top 
of someone else, it just makes them so much more versatile, I think. Yep. And we've seen that Gorn, you know, is a threat up forward now as well. So I just think Melbourne's an infinitely better team with Jackson in it. And I'll be very sad if he doesn't re-sign. He seems to love Gorn. I'm pretty sure he will re-sign instead of going back to WA. But yeah, what are your thoughts on the Jackson-Gorn combo? Oh, I think it's it's gonna it's a decision that was made that is probably going to influence how teams set their rucks up. I think we might go back to the two ruck model uh, because it, it's very hard to ruck for a whole game in the way that the game is played at the moment. And there's a lot of ruckmen that like to do it, and I know Max was probably one of them that liked to do that. And it was his yeah. mantle, but um, yeah, he just. Uh, you know, it, it, it's benefited his game to have the occasional rest in that, and it's benefited the team to get some different looks at those um at those center hitouts. So, and it means when you do have either Gorn or Jackson in the ruck, they can be giving you know that few extra percent of effort in those contests. I think because yeah. they haven't been smashed into quite as much. I think it does give them a bit of an edge there. Yeah, absolutely, and. It's always handy for a ruckman to work on their, I guess, their forward craft. It's a great string to add to a ruckman's bow. Um, I don't think every ruckman has to be a, a forward. I mean, there was definitely, yeah, there's, you've always got those kick behind play ruckmen that do a good job, and Max can do that as well. But I think it's always handy if a ruckman can kick a goal. Yeah, absolutely. Was it the right decision not to tag Caleb Daniel? So he was getting a lot of possessions off uh, static mark and mopping up in defence. Uh, I think it was you to- who told me he'd got 26 possessions to half time. Yep. Uh, so obviously he's in their top couple of kicks, if not the top. Uh, I guess Melbourne had more or less made the decision that they were going to value, uh, you know, working someone within their system above uh, stopping Daniel getting the ball. Was this the right decision? Um. Yeah, tough one. I think in the first half, a lot of his a lot of his possessions weren't really in dangerous positions uh, that could have done a lot of damage in the first quarter, rather. Um, but he's a strange player to let roam free, isn't he? And mop and just gather up his his fair share of possessions because yeah, just the way he kicks it, it's it, it's pretty hard to defend that kind of stuff and. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I'm not sure what the thoughts were there, but it might have been a decision worth considering because what were so did we had did, who, who do we have Harms run with at first? I think did he get the first shot at Bond maybe or can't perhaps yeah can't quite remember. But look, I think someone like Daniel, you, you've got to tend to him a bit, so. Uh, I'm on the fence with this one, Dan. I'm not really sure. <laughs> it's so easy to say yeah. yes, but I, I don't know. I think they were just conceding it. I think they were just conceding that. Yeah, I think they were. They made the decision that they thought the player in their system was more important than trying to stop him yeah. being the one who kicks it in, which is an interesting decision, but you know they won the game. It's hard to really argue with that. But yeah, I guess it's a kind of a... F- philosophical thing like do you let some of these guys run around who can damage you or do you you know take someone out of your system it seems like more and more 
they don't want to actually take anyone out of the system unless they really have to. Well, it's a, it's an expensive action, really, isn't it? To, to it say is, to a player, yeah. I don't care about your game. I don't care about how many touches you get. I just want you to make sure he doesn't get any. And if yeah. when you do that, it's not an exact science either. I mean, Caleb Daniel's been tagged a few times by other teams this year, and he still ended up with you know his odd twenties and twenty fives, yeah. and that he, he can get off the chain still. Um, so, so it's a risk. Maybe they just maybe they just did the math and saw you know this is what happens when he gets tagged. Is it really worth taking someone out of our system to try and limit that? And ultimately, it seems like they've said yep. no. I reckon they did the myth. I think you're right. All right. This may seem slightly uh, premature, but can Melbourne become a dynasty team? So the core of this team are all very young. Uh, really, the only player that is anywhere near the door, and Gorn would probably argue that he's not near the door, uh, having you know had the knee surgeries earlier in his career, which will hopefully prolong him a little bit. Mm. Uh, May, I think, is what, like 28, maybe? Yeah, so so he's still got plenty of good seasons left. Neil Bullen, somewhere around there, 27, 28. But the rest of these guys, they're all, you know, like 25 and younger. Like, yeah. the core of this team is very young, and there's plenty of guys in, like, first and second year. Like, there's no reason why, you know, hunger permitting and whatever else, obviously you need to quick tweak the game plan as you go along, but there's no reason why Melbourne shouldn't be competing for the top four for the next couple of years on on the evidence we have. Do you agree? Look, you've got a lot of those players in that 25 to 29 bracket, but not only that, you've got a lot of those players playing career best form. So I, I, honestly, it's... Almost impossible, barring like injuries in that, to see why Melbourne wouldn't have another shot at it in the years to come. Yeah, and they have had a really good uh, run with injuries this year. So, you know, you never know what's going to happen with injuries, but there probably is going to be some adversity on that front in the next year or two. So you might lose one of your really important players. But yeah, I just think the, the way they've got their system set up, they should be able to cover for some injuries in the regular season. And I just think, especially next year, they're likely to be really hungry again. You know, obviously they'll be the hunted, but, you know, they'll be getting to play at the MCG again. They'll have the prospects of home finals at the MCG. Like, for a premiership team, like, what better lure than that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of a sudden, Melbourne's a destination club. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a place to be. And just the fact that, you know... The core of Melbourne supporters are in Melbourne and we didn't get to see this grand final live or even experience grand final week. So I think that will be like, maybe not be a huge driving factor for the players, but you know, they'll want to do it for themselves and, you know, for everyone else. But I think that will be something that they tap into at least at some point in the year to know that, you know, get back there again, or at least give it a red hot shot and, uh, you know, play some really big finals at the MCG in front of the Melbourne faithful who have stuck it out over so many decades and, uh, yeah, get the full reward for having such a great team now. Yeah, not to mention if Melbourne can find a permanent home base in the precinct, <laughs> uh, that nice. would help even more, I reckon. So, yeah, yeah, it could be an exciting time. All right, last one. We've just ticked over the two-hour mark. <laughs> Could Melbourne become the first premiership team to play together again? 
So this references the fact that a premiership team has never, ever played a game together again. So, you know, someone gets traded, someone gets injured, uh, new players are drafted, etc., etc. The same team never plays together again. Uh, I guess this is actually made even more difficult for Melbourne because if you include uh, James Jordan, who was the sub, uh, I'm not sure whether we'd be including him in this, but I guess he's on the team suit team sheet so you would be so I guess that makes it even more unlikely but the mm. reason I raise this is because you know Melbourne's not going to have anyone retire they don't have a lot of high-end draft picks uh you know if people stay healthy which I know is a big if I could actually see this team running out together again and they've signed a lot of these players onto long-term contracts um yeah I mean so is the question, so the 22 that ran out in this grand final, is the 22 that runs out in round one, 2022? Well, it could be round one. It could be any round for the rest of their any careers. Any round for the rest it's of their careers. It's never happened that the same, the grand final team actually runs out again okay. in any game. Yeah, right. I just, I can't see any reason why it wouldn't. I mean, Barring I think injury. one reason, yeah, barring Three injury, seasons. one reason why this is a little bit more likely is, you know, we've seen how settled Simon Goodwin likes to keep his teams. He, we've heard some stuff in the media about him almost being willing to sort of rest players in the team by actually just limiting their game time to, you know, 50 or 60% some of the younger players. So if that's your model where you're, you know, trying to get as many games into your preferred team as possible. Obviously, you need to bring in, you know, a couple of guys every now and then. But if that's your model, then I think it actually does give you a chance of actually seeing this 22 again. Yeah, absolutely. And it is a system-based approach. And, you know, if you... it's Yeah, it's going to be the players who know that system that get selected often uh, as opposed to maybe new draftees and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, look, it could happen. It could happen. I mean, look, I'm looking through the list right now and I'm just thinking, even if someone does go out, you could easily see them getting back in the team later in the year. And Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, yeah. The injury would be the only reason why this doesn't happen, in my opinion. All right. Let's keep an eye out for that next year. Yes. <laughs> All right. Any final thoughts, Johnny, on uh, the experience of this grand final or anything else you want to add yes. before we... Bring it to a close. Yes, there's one thing I'd like to add, and I don't want to end on a bad note, but I was a little bit disappointed. Uh, I think Basil Zimplis did a great job, but I was a little bit disappointed that Simon Goodwin didn't get uh, to do his speech on the dice. Yeah, that was disappointing. I was also a little bit disappointed that he didn't let Andrew Embley announce the Norm Smith winner. Usually that's what happens. Um, uh, yeah, it's yeah, part of it. But apart from that, he did a good job, but I... I was a bit disappointed that Goody got robbed at that moment. Uh, I think if anyone deserved to say a few words, it was definitely him. Yeah, but absolutely. I don't want to end off on a bad note. Let's quickly say something else and then we'll end the show. <laughs> so I think if you took a poll of every single Melbourne member at the start of the year, you'd probably only have got the people saying Melbourne were going to win the premiership would be the ones who say it every year. So mm. I think you can you can almost cancel their votes. So if you polled every Melbourne member, I think you'd struggle to find 
a handful of people who said Melbourne were going to win the premiership. So it has been an absolutely epic ride uh, from a team that had, uh, you know, missed the finals in 2020 and uh, steadily built uh, towards the back half of 2020. And I guess a lot of people didn't quite see the signs that were there and maybe we were partially guilty of that as well. But yeah, just to see how they approached this year, how they played for each other, how they were selfless, how they've moulded a game plan that I've said on this podcast is broken football. And it's kind of hard to argue when you see a performance like that on the weekend. Uh, when Melbourne is playing at their best, that they look as close to unbeatable as I think I've actually seen in AFL, which I know is a big statement and maybe a little bit of recency bias there, but they look unbeatable. I think and, you're uh, right. I think you're right, Dan. I, I have to agree with you now that Melbourne's best, there's no one better. Uh, I did sort of have this opinion that maybe the Bulldogs, if no one's better than their best, I still think their best is very, very good. But um, yeah, I think Melbourne's is the benchmark. Absolutely. So credit to everyone involved with the organisation and uh, yeah, great reward for all supporters who have stuck it out over many years and uh, have endured uh, some pretty torrid times. But yeah, brighter times ahead, hopefully. And, you know, no guarantees of anything next year, but got a good young team. Even if, you know, there's a dip or a, you know, unexpected failure somewhere on the lines, we've got a good team now. And I think we'll be able to enjoy this for the next few years, which is something we've never been able to say we've never you know won a premiership in our lifetime and i guess you could argue that this is likely to be just the start of this next phase and probably every you know premiership team thinks they're going to be hanging around and they don't all do it but uh i think melbourne's is placed as well as any has been in a while so uh let's see what happens next day johnny absolutely i just want to say as well because there's a few droughts out there still and um you know i'm looking at st kilda at the moment um this is just a good example that you know if you get the right people into your club and you get the right uh list managers and you know assistant coaches and yeah you just get the right personnel in you can change it i mean i was in complete disbelief seeing what richmond did going from 2016 to 2017 uh same with the bulldogs and I looked at those teams and thought, why why is every other team with a big dread breaking it except us? Are we just the exception to this rule and that? So I just want to, yeah, a bit of a message to, I guess, mainly St Kilda fans and other clubs that haven't been around for a while. Maybe even maybe even a Carlton or something who now, I think it's been 25 years or something. That, um, yeah, just don't give up hope on your team because if you get the right people in, it can change on a dime. Absolutely. Good message to end on there. Thanks for jumping on the line, Johnny. A uh, long episode, but I think it was justified. <laughs> yes, absolute pleasure, Dan. Um, yep, thank you very much. And remember, we will be back next week for our Making a Premiership side episode as well. So we'll go into a fair bit of detail about the journey and uh, you know what it took to build this list and how did some of these players turn from also-rans into 
guys that you can depend on uh, to do exactly what you need to do in the most high-pressure situation. So a little bit of a prelude to next week there. Thanks for sticking with us all through the year. I hope you've enjoyed uh, the whole year, but in particular our finals coverage where I think we've probably gone up a level with uh, the way we've done it. So hopefully you've enjoyed that. Um, And uh, yeah, tune in next week if you get the chance and uh, we'll uh, deliver that episode as well about this great Melbourne team. Bye for now.